Hello, it's the 11th of March 2017, and this is episode 20 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular roundup of Star Wars news, analysis, and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And today we have two very special guests. <laughs> so, yeah, we basically promised you a very special show when we came back because we had a break last week. Um, and it's very special because, first of all, we have Shy on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself, Shy? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Shy, uh, but uh, I'm actually known as Otzi online. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm Otzi, and I'm an old uh, Republic Star Wars fan. Uh, and during my spare time, I run a blog where I write fiction, fan fiction, and talk about writing meta. Um, and I've existed on the margins of multiple fandoms for a long time, but I wasn't active in the Star Wars community until last year. Um, and when the, the Force Awakens came out, I wrote a series of essays and shorter blog posts that got a lot of traction. The two biggest of them were my one and only, or why Force Bonds are so important, and the, um, I guess it's infamous now, uh, <laughs> Death and the Maiden, or how Raylo will be canon, but not in the way you're hoping. Awesome. Yeah, no, we're thrilled to have you on, Shy. So thank you very much for making the time. Um, And then our other guest is one who you might remember from one of our older shows, and that is Natasha. Would you like to introduce yourself again, Natasha? Yeah, hi. My name's Natasha. I'm also Ashes for Foxes on Tumblr. Um, The Force Awakens is actually the first fandom I've ever engaged in, but I've been a Star Wars fan since Empire, from when I saw it the first time on beta tape when I was 11. (laughs) (laughs) I've been Yeah, a long time. I've been writing about the new trilogy as it relates to uh, Jungian archetypes, myth, and folklore. And uh, I like to focus on the heroine's journey, which is distinctly different from the hero's journey as um, dictated by Campbell, um, which is important to Star Wars, of course. Um, But yeah, I'm glad to be back on. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much again. Like, it's really awesome you you guys are like titans of relo fandom meta <laughs> so it's awesome to have you here Thanks. i don't i don't feel like a titan and i don't really act like a titan <laughs> oh gosh no it's as you'll find out in, in, the, in the podcast uh the way that i write or the length that i write and the way that i speak is a little bit different so um yeah that's, yeah. that's good <laughs> might be like a demystification process for people like, no the real Otzi, <laughs> real I would love foxes the, the, yep. the real uh the real the real Otzi, you know but <laughs> yeah sure yeah no problem i basically gave up like any dignity or like mystery as soon as i started doing this yeah like i'm this stupid person who breaks out into song at random moments and like makes long rambling points that go nowhere <laughs> No, I love your band of song. I think it's important. Thank you. To be honest, I feel like I gave up my dignity when I wrote like 17,000 words about two people kissing. (laughs) Yes. I feel like I've lost that for over a year now. Um, But yeah, it's it's always just a different point for everyone, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Right. And then, like before we get into the show proper, there's a few orders of business to deal with. Um, The first thing, and probably the most exciting, is that we've actually been nominated for two Star Wars Podcasting Awards. Uh, So yeah, Kirsty, would you like to thank you? (laughs) Kirsty, would you like to say which awards they are? Yeah, so we're in the categories for People's Choice and New Show which is really exciting. Uh, thank you to everyone who nominated us. We weren't really expecting to be featured alongside so many other well-known shows. Um, so it's really cool to see. 
Um, if people want to vote for us, I think voting is open until April 1st and then they'll announce winners like during the celebration, which mm -hmm. is just kind of two weeks after that. Um, so yeah, we can put a link in the show notes and um, it should be like interesting to see what happens next. Like, I, you know, like I said, we weren't really expecting to get this far. Um, mm. So that's very cool. Thank you to everyone for supporting us. Yeah, no, it's really exciting just to see our names up amongst like now this is podcasting and stores and yeah, all these really well-established <laughs> and highly regarded podcasts. It's like, wow, <laughs> this is actually yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's kind of surreal. Like putting us in the new new show category makes a bit more sense, obviously, because we're still in very early days. But mm -hmm. um, People's Choice particularly is it's pretty cool. So yeah. Great. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, and then the other things are, as always, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes because that really helps us out. And if you have any questions for question time later in the show, please email them to scavengershoard at gmail.com. Right, and with that said, we have a very interesting and juicy bit of news, which is that we have a breakdown of the last Jedi footage that was shown by Bob Iger at the Disney shareholders meeting. Like, shareholders meeting, it sounds such a boring <laughs> event, yet this is where they show the first footage. <laughs> like, seriously, mm. I've never wanted Disney shares more. <laughs> <laughs> I actually looked it up. All you need is just one share in Disney. To be fair, I don't know how much a share costs. <laughs> um, and you can go to this meeting. Like so oh, really? it doesn't yeah, it doesn't matter if you have millions of dollars worth of shares or ten dollars worth of shares, anyone can go. So I'm kind of shocked that you know That's a just... bad thing to tempt me with. Um... <laughs> hmm, Disney stock. Well, you would have had to sit through hours of boring reports and data. Like I, I have been to shareholder meetings and it's just, I already sit you want to die. hours long with boring reports. So yeah. it's not that it's pretty much you know, daily business there. It'd be like carrot and stick, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the um, pain and dullness of the charts, and like knowing that there's going to be stars footage in there somewhere. Um, right. So basically, we have had various different sources contribute like breakdowns and descriptions of what they saw at this event. So I've just tried to draw together the reports that have the most and the most detailed information. And then, like, some other tidbits from places where that information wasn't shared. Um, so, right, I'm just going to run through the breakdown. Um, I've seen some people refer to this as spoilers, but it's really, really not in my estimations. Because this is nothing that you will not see in the first trailer. So, I wouldn't consider this spoilers. That's probably because I'm completely desensitised and I have no concept of what a spoiler is anymore. No, I mean, I... that's fair because it is the kind of thing that's going to show up in marketing. So, yeah. unless you're, like, not going to walk into a Target until the film has come out or, like, not turn on the TV or watch a trailer at all, then it should be fine. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, I hate spoilers. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I very much dislike them. Um, but I don't consider this a spoiler either. So yeah, it's it's you, you've got multiple people across the board saying it's not spoilers. So I don't think it is. Yeah, no, I think we're pretty good. Um, Right. So this breakdown is from Slash Film and it goes. The first shot is an interior shot featuring Luke Skywalker in some sort of cave or maybe one of the stone huts seen on the island saying, who are you? Then there's Poe Dameron in his X-Wing yelling, it's now or never, as it cuts back to BB-8. Fighters flying through a lineup of the Resistance fleet. 
had a feel similar to Rogue One over Scarif. Chewbacca roars. This sounds like some bizarre haiku. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to keep on going. A shot of Captain Phasma. Finn dressed as a First Order officer on the bridge of a First Order ship. Actress Kelly Marie Tran was standing to Finn's left, also dressed in a First Order uniform. Several shots of Ray igniting and spinning Luke's lightsaber. Ray's hand in slow motion, with all five fingertips touching the ground and pebbles and dirt hovering around her hand. Leia turning to the camera with a hologram of the fleet behind her. An X-Wing flying into a hangar, possibly the Resistance's since it looked like another X-Wing was parked there, with the nose of the X-Wing flaring popping up afterwards as the X-Wing braked quickly in the air. There was also a wide shot of the island, with Rey on the point of a ridge practising with her lightsaber as Luke is further up the ridge, looking down towards her. And then finally, there's just a few more things, and these were tweeted by Daniel Miller, who was also at the shareholders meeting. And these are just things that the Slash film breakdown didn't really cover. So, The last Jedi footage included a shot of Rey, clearly under duress, surrounded by many small orbs of light that hung in the air. And one last thing on the last Jedi footage, we saw all sorts of settings, mountains, oceans, forests, deserts, it looked suitably ex- epic and exotic. <sighs> right, that's quite a lot of information. Um, we could probably have like a painstakingly detailed discussion about every single facet of it. Um, but for the sake of keeping the show moving, like what are just like our general thoughts and what stands out as like particularly interesting or noteworthy about this? Um, would you like to go first, Shai? Uh, sure. Uh, so in terms of the actual trailer itself, I mean, I don't consider it a spoiler. And I mean, trailers do change if there's revisions to the film before it's released. We saw that with Rogue One yeah, um, as the most infamous recent example. Um, it, but star, the start, the main Star Wars uh, trilogy is is serialized, where each plot device is dependent upon the ones that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can't really change those core bits from trailer to movie without running into some serious narrative issues, at least not in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, with the exception of like little tiny visual things, I think it's pr- probably safe to trust the the core info that's in the trailer. Um, you know, uh, towards the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm super excited that we get to see a shot of Kelly Marie Tran because we haven't really yeah. heard too much about, about her character before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's too early to tell exactly what her role will be, like whether she's working as a double agent or whether she's, you know, it's a ruse or, or what exactly what's going on with her character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that if if this turns out to be true in the trailer, uh, it, it's I think it lines up with earlier leaks and speculation that Finn and uh, Kelly's characters would be sharing a lot of screen time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think actually uh, Boyega mentioned that himself. So that that's fantastic, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm really, really happy that we finally get some information on her character um, and hear more about her because uh, she's been described as having a larger role. And yeah, that's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also really interested in Luke's who are you lying just because it caused so much controversy online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, I think it's from, from, I think it's safe to assume just from this, the spoiler trailer itself, that Ray is being trained by Luke in some capacity, which isn't too much of a surprise. Uh, but also the, 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 when he says, who are you, this is played heavily into online discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think who, who he says it to matters a great deal. Yeah. Uh, because like in Star Wars, like so Star Wars canon is my thing. I'm I'm really, really, really big on canon and lore. 
and, and if you're a Force-sensitive individual, you often have the ability to sense other family members through a familial version of something called a Force bond. And in a nutshell, Force bonds allow you to sense the person that you're bonded with over a great distance, and you know who they are, right? Mm -hmm. So if... Uh, if Luke has like the a really notable version of this force bond is actually between Vader and Luke uh, himself, um, and even in through it they're able to sense one another, and uh, Vader is also able to sense that Luke has another family member, his twin sister Leia. Uh, so the the ability to sense family members through a force bond is a canon artifact, and it's definitely something Luke should be able to do given his power and personal history. Like it's actually in the original trilogy. Mm -hmm. So if if Ray was his daughter and he's saying "Who are you?" to her, mm -hmm. uh, it, he shouldn't have to say that because he should just know her, right? Like he's yeah. got the ability to do this. Uh, mm -hmm. But online, there's a dedicated core of individuals who are are very very. Uh, it's been talked about before, both by us and by other people, uh, where they believe that Ray is Luke's daughter. Um, but if he does say, who are you to her, uh, this, that actually undermines this theory quite a great deal. Um, and it's been really interesting to see the, the backlash to even just the minor possibility that he is saying this to her. Mm. Uh, because online, there's... there. They, they, people have had people doubling down and saying Disney shareholders are not a reliable source of info. Um, there's There's been meta written, actually, about, you know, the words, who are you alone in an effort to find some sort of alternative meeting uh, that doesn't imply what it seems to be implying regarding Ray's uh, parentage. Mm. Yeah, that is a really good thoughts. Like, what did you think, Natasha? Like, would you, like, do your thoughts line up with um, Shai's? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I've seen the the discourse around the who are you line and I just think well we need to see it to and they'll need to see it to believe it they'll also probably just think that it's a rhetorical question or like a, you know just a, a, one of those wise master koans you know like he gives Ray yeah <laughs> dude you know yourself um, <laughs> yes Ray Yoda like um mm -hmm. but yeah no I'm I'm excited more so for for Finn and Kelly Marie Tran seeing that footage I like everything that we've heard so far is that Finn will be infiltrating the first order and that, you know, he'll have interactions with stormtroopers who recognize him, you know, Tom Hardy's character. Um, so we're, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting more information on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what did you make of all this Kirsty? Like, did anything else stand out to you as particularly interesting? Well, the, who are you line kind of reminds me of that trailer for the force awakens. Mm hmm. Where is it Maz who's asking and then Ray yes. says I'm no one. Mm -hmm. Um so it kind of it does it is a bit meta, isn't it, that um the that's the core question in fandom still that people still desperately want to know who Ray is in terms of her parentage, not just her herself. Yeah. Um so it's almost like Disney are poking fun at this right now. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we know this is what you you want to find out um and this is what you'll be walking into the, the cinema in december kind of that's going to be the the primary thing for lots of people it's not yeah. for me but um obviously it's been something that's dominated fandom discourse since last december um yes yeah all against the pavement Right, almost to the detriment, and we've talked about this before, of other things that are actually in the, in the movie um, that are arguably more interesting about Rey and her relationships to other characters. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's been a shame, but obviously we'll know the answer either way. Um, not long now, so yeah. um, 
Yeah. Other than that, lots of the things like we were saying, like, oh, Chewbacca roars. Oh, you get to see Phasma. Oh, Poe <laughs> has this cliche line, you know, like <laughs> it's it's exciting because it's like the first real news we have. But yeah. um, it's predictably vague. Like it's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a Star Wars movie. So, yeah, no, I think I think three things stuck out to me. The first thing was the who are you line. And like, I definitely think that like adds to my belief that Ray is not Luke's daughter. Um, although I don't think it necessarily means that he actually doesn't know who she is. I do think it might be some kind of like test or prompt to discover what Ray thinks she is That's or knows about her history. Um, like, and I think a lot of my opinion on that line is going to depend on how it's delivered. Because I think the inflection and the context of it, like just seeing Mark Hamill's face as he delivers that line, I think that's going to tell us a lot more information than just having the bare fact of the fact that line is said. Mm. Because it could be said in so many different ways. Um, and, and I think I also saw something how in the shooting script actually refers to like Luke not needing to say anything, like his face says it all. Um, like so he doesn't need to ask that question of who she is then so there's either some kind of like inconsistency between the shooting script and what Ryan's gone with or the shooting script is more just for the benefit of the actors rather than giving you actual character information which is also highly plausible Um, yeah and then the other thing was that I found it very interesting that it's clearly Finn and Kelly Marie Tran infiltrating this first order base so i remember a long time ago when princes william and harry visited the set there was a rumor that came out in the british press about um john Bega and daisy ridley filmed a scene with benicio del toro and the princes dressed as stormtroopers and that spoiler about hearing finn and kelly marie tran together in that context that adds to my belief that i think it was just confused reporting and that the girl with finn is going to be kelly marie tran's character rather than ray because mm-hmm. um, based on what you've been hearing it wouldn't really make sense for Ray to be with Finn in that particular moment um, yeah so like that was a very interesting little detail um, and then I guess just the final thing was that I really like the sound of that shot where Ray is surrounded by small orbs of light that sounds like really magical and mystical to me um, and yeah it just sounded like the most visually interesting shot in this whole thing so like Kirsty said a lot of this sounds very like stock star wars like oh x-wings oh chewbacca phasma boo like, which is fine there's nothing fundamentally wrong with those things but they're just not what i find most exciting whereas like ray being apparently in distress and being surrounded by weird lights and floating orb thingies that's more up my street kind of so yeah, yeah the the orbs of light thing is interesting because it reminds me of that episode of Rebels where Force Ghost Yoda is talking to Ezra as he walks through that Jedi temple. Mm. Um, so we've been hearing rumors about Force Ghost Yoda. I don't know how reliable that is, mm. um, but it could possibly play into that in some way. Yeah. Before we move on, actually, uh, just judge my memory. It's, in terms of the, uh, the the orbs of light, do you guys remember a leak or it came out on Reddit months and months and months ago where they were talking about Ray being in a hut 
um, and orbs of light and uh, everything basically lifting up and then dropping down, it, like she was screaming or something like that, or in heavy distress. Like, the, the, at the time, the rumor was panned, or the leak was panned as false. Mm. Uh, but now that we've got this idea that there is orbs of light or that she is in distress, um, and there's also the question of Luke saying, who are you in a dark hut? Uh, I'm starting to wonder if there was actually some truth to it. Like if there was, if it wasn't just, if it wasn't actually, if it wasn't some sort of basis for it before that. Yeah, like it's certainly possible. Like it's always so hard with like these Reddit rumors because obviously mm-hmm. anything on Reddit, like you're a bit like, I'm fundamentally <laughs> disinclined to believe this because it's Reddit and Reddit's so full of BS and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Um, I think that particular rumor was discredited because the mm-hmm. scene that was described, which I think was Ray, like say in distress in mm-hmm. a hut and she was levitating all of the objects in the room mm-hmm. like until she just reached like a peak of rage and just yeah. like, everything like dropped down like crashed down and that is pretty much a carbon copy of a scene from Ryan Johnson's Looper yeah. um, where yeah. a child character from that film does exactly that and I think people just thought it was someone trying to take Ryan Johnson's filmography and like pick up a scene from that and apply it to Star Wars, um, which I think was why people discredited it. Um, But yeah, like, that's not to say it's impossible, because like, I'm sure Ryan Johnson isn't above looking back to his own work for ideas and for homages and inspirations. So, yeah, like, it could well be real. Like, my dream Reddit rumour to be real is still the (laughs) part. Yeah, I I will settle for that. It's more just, um, I'm more interested in the fact that it's like we're seeing the same sort of imagery pop up again and again, and whether it's a whether it has to do with overall archetypes or whether it has to do with the Rian's uh, filmography in general, right? I think that'd yeah. be really interesting to see how that plays out on screen. Yeah, like I didn't actually remember like references to orbs of light in that particular rumor, but it's been a long time since like I read it, so there might well be. Like I would need to dig it out again, like go through the bowels of Reddit. Place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sound particularly appealing, does it? Um, right, are there any other things we want to say about the footage? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay, cool. Right, then the next story is that Michael K. Williams is rumoured to join the Han Solo film. And this is from Variety. The Wire star Michael K. Williams is in final talks to join the upcoming Han Solo spin-off starring Al- Alden Ehrenreich. Variety has learned exclusively... Donald Glover, Fandy Newton, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Woody Harrelson, and Amelia Clark are already set to co-star in the Disney Lucasfilm feature, directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. John and Lawrence Kasdan are penning the script. Details about Williams' character are unknown, as are plot details for the movie, other than it being an origin tale of the rogue smuggler. And then a Variety reporter, John Justin Kroll... He tweeted, I wasn't able to confirm, but Phil Michael K. Williams is the villain in the pick from other sources. Mm. So, yeah, it's all very vague. But, yeah, I was wondering, have any of us, like, seen this actor in other things? Like, does anyone have a feel for the kind of roles he plays? Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that they pegged him as a villain. I don't know if you guys watched The Night Of, that um, HBO show that was a limited series with Riz Ahmed. No, I haven't. I've heard good things about it, though. 
Yeah, he plays um, kind of this really powerful figure within the prison that uh, the main character goes in, well into, um, it, it, and it's a really powerful kind of very scary role. So I think mm. he's got that kind of silent, like brooding, scary kind of thing going on. So yeah, yeah, he's he's kind of got that nailed down. He's not really a comedic actor. He's definitely more <laughs> <of a> dramatic. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but he's he's he was one of the most beloved characters on The Wire. I haven't finished that show yet, but. Um, it's a good one too awesome like um have you guys um seen him in anything shy and kirsty um it's the uh sorry the i've seen i've seen a bit of the wire um i haven't seen as much as nat so i really can't get a a feel for as to exactly what role he's going to be playing Mm -hmm. um and and I, i tend to not like to decide upon what role the actor will be playing until the actual role comes out because uh, it's a little bit like typecasting you know like what if they play you know something different yeah uh, so it's for me there's still too much up in the air to feel comfortable speculating as to what role he's playing mm-hmm. uh, and I just I did have a question about for clarification so they said it has it been is it confirmed that he's the villain or did the they just think he's the villain like it, just from the way he looks it's just basically the reporter like mm-hmm. so like this variety reporter he has people who are telling him that Michael K. Williams is playing the villain so okay. presumably like insiders in the industry but he mm-hmm. hasn't been able to completely establish that as a fact so I don't think it's his assumption that he's playing the okay. villain I think it's based on something but he just can't verify it to the extent that it would be included in the like actual report okay All right. yeah, I was just curious yeah sure Um, how about you Kirsty? Um, I'm a huge fan of The Wire. That's one of my favorite TV shows ever. Oh, and awesome. I love Omar, the character that he plays. So I am really, really excited about this news. Um, uh, like what kind of character is Omar? Could you like set him up for the ignorant ones amongst us like myself? <laughs> um, well, he's a gay black man. Um, okay. And he is like in this almost, I think of him as kind of an anti-hero. Would, mm-hmm. would you guys kind of say that? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean... It's complicated because The Wire is obviously a very morally grey show where, like, you have tons of people in um, law enforcement who are corrupt and, you know, it's not like, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Um, But he's just a super interesting character, like, full of charisma and um, you can't, like, he's so compelling. Like, when he's on screen, he just steals every scene. Um, And I've seen him in Boardwalk Empire as well, which I I wasn't a fan of that show as much. Um, It kind of got old for me, but um, still he was fantastic in it. Like he's a very talented actor. Mm -hmm. Um, Like Shy, I'm kind of hesitant to go with this idea of him as the villain because like, again, with the idea of a Han Solo movie, who we perceive as a villain might not necessarily be one Mm -hmm. um, because Han himself is not this morally upstanding person. (laughs) Yes. but yeah, like I, I'm just really excited about this movie and this this press release kind of um, not press release but report um, reminded me again that it's John and Lawrence Kasdan writing it, mm-hmm. um, and they co-wrote one of my favorite scenes from The Force Awakens, which is Han and his son on the bridge. Yeah. Um, so I'm just really excited to see what they do with the character. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I really like the ensemble they're drawing together for this film. I must say, like, I think they've got really like interesting actors. Like who come from like all these different traditions, like in different kinds of like TV shows and movies, but they all seem really, really strong and talented, like in their own ways. And I'm really excited to see what kind of chemistry they have on screen. 
because these aren't normally names that you'd think to like join together for an ensemble cast like this. So it's really cool. Like it definitely seems like they're mining like TV actors like crazy for this because you obviously have Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones, Fandy Newton from Westworld, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like, oh, what's the name of her show again? Shows Fleabag. It's on Amazon. Ah, thank you. Yeah, no, I've heard really great things. Like these casting rumors, they always like they make me feel so self-conscious. It's like, oh, I, there's so much TV. Yeah, <laughs> I feel really overwhelmed. Um. But yeah, I, I just think it's coming together in a really nice way, and fingers crossed it all turns out nicely. So yes, um, yeah. Does anyone any um does anyone want to say anything else about this? Um, not really. It's it, I mean, it's right now you're talking about it like Williams, right? And the other character, the other actor, I'm I'm really excited about is Sandy Newton because I just mm. absolutely lo- I love her, um, yeah. and her role on Westworld is just phenomenal so i'm very 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 excited for that but uh that's pretty much a given yeah no absolutely <laughs> she's probably my favorite part of that show like oh, although actually i also really love evan rachel wood in westworld oh <laughs> uh sandy's the best <laughs> yeah like ah yeah no you're right <laughs> i concede i concede <laughs> um right now the next story is from star wars newsnet and it's that the Han Solo movie is to film on, be prepared for me to pronounce this wrong, <laughs> Vertaventura? I think so. I believe mum and dad have been on holiday there, actually. So <laughs> I should know that more than I do. Um, but right, yeah, this is the report from Star Wars Newsnet. Back in January, we told you about a report posted on a trusted Spanish site that the Han Solo spin-off movie will potentially be filmed on the Spanish island of Vertaventura, now, the local film commission, a public and non-profit organization that helps any filming on that island, has officially confirmed that Disney has all the permits to shoot the next Star Wars film about the adventures of young Han Solo there. Right, and this is a quote, presumably from the film commission. During the last months, we have been working with representatives of Surf Film and Disney to finalize the locations to prepare a work schedule for the filming. All the pertinent reports to authorize this shoot have been issued. The sh- this shoot consolidates the destination. Fortaventura is a natural film set in the world and will help promote the island internationally. We have turned to insular and municipal labour markets for producers to select workers. So riveting stuff. Um, like, <laughs> that, that's, I'd class that in the same level of interest as the Disney board meeting. <laughs> but, but good for them. I can understand why they'd be happy because this is the kind of thing that really helps tourism and encourages people to go. And I'm sure it's going to mean that there's going to be like a very peculiar mix of like tourists and hardcore Star Wars fans on like exhibitions to this place in the future. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's like you know Skellig Michael in Ireland, uh, yeah. which is Act Two. Like mm-hmm. I think I read somewhere that like the boats now they're like half like bird fanciers and half <laughs> Star Wars fans. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Like so I'm going there in the summer. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I plan on doing like demographic profiling of everyone on the boat and like guessing Star Wars fan, bird watcher, Star Wars that's, fan. That's a noble endeavor, and you have fun with that. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> um, yeah, but more seriously, guys, um, did we have any particular thoughts on this? 
No, not really. Like, uh, once we start getting, once they start leaking pictures of the set and stuff like that, I'll start theorizing what planet it is, whether it's from canon or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I, I don't think this this movie will have anything to do with Sith artifacts or, or, or Sith temples, I, I dearly hope it does, because uh, <laughs> I'm perpetually thirsty for it. Uh, so... Beyond that, it's my my only thought about the island and uh, and and bird watching. I guess that image is not going to leave my head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How how about you, Natasha? I just looked up some pictures of it, and it it's really actually very interesting and pretty. It's like almost like a desert island, but with the uh, really blue waters around it. Mm. So it's a really nice setting. I think it it kind of feels a little bit like it might be a good place for like kind of a westerny vibe, which I would figure that's what they're kind of trying to do with this movie a little bit because yeah, sure. they talk about that. Um, so yeah, I'm just looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Kirsty, um, I didn't have a ton of thoughts. Like it kind of reminds me of Scarif visually, but I highly doubt that that's what they're going for. Yeah, um, it might be somewhere totally new, and obviously we don't know how much of the film will be set there so it's really hard to theorize it on it just based from this information absolutely yeah i know the um cynic in me always when i see these kinds of reports i'm like they just chose somewhere they'd want to go on holiday didn't they (laughs) (laughs) i would that's what i would do yeah like what why not like i'm not going to hold any grievance against them for that but like you see all these pictures of the actors from rogue one when they were filming like, oh, I can't remember where, but like on the island they used, and it looks so nice. And you can just see them like in these like deck chairs, their sunglasses. Like, and to be fair, I'm sure they're incredibly hot because they're in a full costume. <laughs> but still, it looked like a pretty sweet gig, you know. So, like, I would not complain. Um, right, we said all we want to say about the beautiful paradise that is Ventura. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, guys. <laughs> um, right, and now we have exciting news. Rebels Series 4 has been confirmed. And this is from a press release on StarWars.com. Star Wars Rebels is set to return for a fourth season, Lucasfilm announced today, premiering later this year on Disney XD. Production is already underway. Mark Buage, I'm really sorry, man, if I mispronounced your name, (laughs) um, Senior Vice President, Programming and General Manager of Disney XD, said... The team behind Star Wars Rebels delivers epic storytelling that has captivated fans of all ages across the globe. We're excited to continue sharing the journey of these fan-favorite Rebels with our audience in the fall. Um, I know you're a Rebels fan, Kirsty. Like, what, are you happy to see this? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Based on this season, they're not going to have all of the character arcs wrapped up. So yes. um, I'm anticipating that this would be the final season just because... They're probably getting a little too close to Rogue One and A New Hope in the timeline. Mm. But who knows? Um, Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see what details we'll get now from the Rebels panel at Celebration. Because they're obviously going to want to hype that there like they did last year. Yeah, definitely. Last year we got details like Thrawn is going to be in the new season. Um, I haven't been too impressed with Thrawn in Rebels. I don't know if other people disagree with that. But um, they'll probably be rolling out some of the big news. So. Yeah, like I'm in the weird position where I don't watch Rebels, but I follow what people are saying about it. And I've seen lots of grievances about Thrawn in Rebels. And I can understand that, so I know he's like this legendary character from the books now known as Legends. Um, Mm. And so I can totally appreciate why people would be upset if they feel like he's not being used to his full potential in this show. Right, that's kind of 
the double-edged sword of bringing back these beloved EU characters, right? Like, I know mm -hmm. there have been these big, um, like, people asking for Mara Jade to come back. And it's like, what are all the strings that have to be pulled for that to happen? Because it's not as simple as it might first sound. Yeah. Um, and obviously, everyone has a different idea, especially if it's just from a book. If they haven't appeared in a film before or anything like that, if people have very strong ideas in their own head of what the character is and who they should yeah. um, be portrayed by and all that kind of thing. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Um, how about you, Natasha? Do you watch Rebels? Uh, no, I haven't. I've been following the news really closely, though, because it seems like there's some pretty awesome stuff happening this season with the... Uh, I've just been looking at the trailers and going, oh, I want to watch this when I, when I can get access to it. Yes. <laughs> I've been catching up on the Clone Wars taken off of Netflix, and I I have a really huge newfound appreciation for what they're doing in the animation department. They're like, it's, they're having so much interesting stuff added to the new canon through these shows. Mm. That it's, it's, yeah, they're great. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and you shy? Do you watch it? Uh, yeah, but in a very, very casual when I have time sort of manner. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's um, I, I'd have to say, so I'm like a, I'd have to agree with the, with Kirsty's uh, opinion on Thrawn. Um, it's because I'm a huge EU fan. Like the EU is, 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 is my thing and basically where I'm most interested in Star Wars, mm -hmm. uh, especially the Old Republic, which is a different era entirely from Thrawn. Um, but it's, I don't hate him, but at the same time, I'm not, like, sold on him. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also do think, uh, I forget which one of you mentioned it, but I think there's also this danger of, like, people, if it's just in a book, everyone's got these really solidified ideas as to what this legendary character is going to look like. Uh, and it's, sometimes that doesn't always translate well to screen and people are let down. And it's like, how do you manage those expectations? Yeah, uh, but I I am glad that it's it's coming back for another season just to wrap things up, mm -hmm. uh, and and to make sure that there's enough time to wrap things up without it getting um without it getting rushed. Yeah, uh, but I I tend to agree with Christy that it's probably going to be the last season. Probably, maybe I don't know. I mean, yeah. they might try to jump you know jump the shark and go for an extra season, but uh, we'll see. You know. Yeah. No, yeah, there have been rumors that they're going to announce a new show as well. I don't know if it'll be live action or animation, um, mm -hmm. and whether it would be this year or next year. But I suppose now celebrations been they've said that they're not doing celebration next year, so I don't know what the implications there would be. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're going to introduce a new show, it would kind of make sense to have Rebels wrapped up yeah. around the same time, right? So that was my thinking. I reckon they're going to want to clear the decks. Like it would be weird to have two animated shows. I'm pretty sure this other show they have in development is another animated one, because okay. I know Dave Filoni he like took a less involved role in Rebels. I I think starting from season two, but maybe season three. Um, I'm not sure. And like people have been speculating that that's because he's been focusing on other projects as well. Um, and that to me says animation. Like that that's obviously an assumption, but. I just think it's the most likely theory right now. Um, and yeah, like that would be good as far as I'm concerned because I have no problems with Rebels and I know it has really like dedicated and passionate fans, which is awesome. But for me personally, I'd prefer to see a series like about the young Ben Solo, for example. You know, I'd personally be more interested in that because I'm really drawn to the whole sequel trilogy era and I really want to understand the events leading up to that. And I think for me, Rebels is just too remote from what's currently happening to be super interesting. 
Um, so yeah, I'd welcome a new show. But like, I'm happy for the fans of Star Wars Rebels that is coming back um, because, as Kirsty said, it's clear that they haven't been able to completely wrap everything up like in this current season. So they obviously need the next one to make sure all those stories are told. Right, then the next story is from Making Star Wars, and it's just about the state of the galaxy in The Last Jedi. Um, and this just basically summarises the context of um, the like the next film. Right, so for Snoke, the loss of the Starkiller base was as significant as his wins. His forces are no longer a secret to the galaxy at large. Those who used to laugh at the idea that the First Order was a threat are either dead or no longer laughing. The Cold War-style standoff is publicly over after the full-on assault on the Republic and the Senate. The galaxy is no longer views Snoke as something that is relevant on the galactic stage. The galaxy knows he and his cronies are maniacal zealots, <laughs> and they should be feared for better or worse. The galaxy seems to be most seems to mostly understand that the First Order is eventually coming to conquer its worlds, and those worlds have to fall in line or resist. Most understand that war has returned and the perceived era of peace is over. Snoke understands that everything the First Order used to do in secret is no longer an option, and a very overt war is on the horizon. Unfortunately, the Republic has completely collapsed after being attacked by Starkiller Base in Star Wars The Force Awakens. The galaxy is in complete disarray. The galaxy understands that everyone has to pick a side now. General Organa no longer stands alone in her determination that the First Order is the greatest threat to freedom and democracy in the galaxy, and the only choice they have left is to fight. Um, yeah, so interesting stuff. Um, what did you make of this, Natasha? Um, I think, didn't Jason Ward add to this and say that um, somebody had asked if, you know, if the Republic even existed anymore? Mm. I think his answer was that it's completely gone. Yeah. It's just resistance now, which was really interesting to me because I feel like that'll set up, you know, a much more chaotic galaxy kind of situation with the different planets and systems having to react without having that kind of centralized communication or governorship. So mm -hmm. that's interesting to me. I'm um, excited to hear. I'm also kind of wondering, you know, they say that people viewed Snoke as irre irrelevant. So that means that people did know who he was or have some familiarity with him, but didn't take him seriously or think that he was a threat. So mm. that adds a little bit more nuance to what we understand. Um, Cause obviously Han and Leia talked about him as if he was known. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested to see where that goes. Mm, absolutely. So it made me think of, I think there's like a deleted scene from Force Awakens where like Han Solo's confronted in the basement of Maz's castle and mm -hmm. like I think the stormtroopers refer to like by orders of Supreme Leader Sm Snoke and Han Solo says Supreme Leader Smoke <laughs> like you make a dumb remark as you'd expect Han to yeah. um, and it's funny but I think it's also interesting it does imply some kind of general familiarity with this figure which is interesting um, yeah, uh, Shai, what did you think? Uh, well, basically, I, I really, really hope that they do something more, in terms of the overall conflict, I hope they do something more complex than, like, Galactic Empire 2.0, because um, it's like, we've seen that before. We, we saw that, uh, we saw that in both the, the prequels and the, and the original trilogy, and for me, it's going to be, uh, if that's all we get in terms of the overall conflict with Snoke, you know, like bad bad guys versus good guys in this, you know, battle for galactic conquest of the world, it's, for me, it'll be a real letdown. 
um, mm. because it's it's a very straightforward conflict. And like once again, we'll have to see Leia uh, fight the bad guys with a ragtag group of rebels. Like we have <laughs> we have seen this multiple times. Yes, and it'll mm-hmm. be like seeing like you remember the the critique that people gave for Starkiller was just like another Death Star, right? Like it's that that story is boring and it's already been told. Um, and I'm I'm looking for a hook, right? Like mm. my own personal preference is is once again you know the old Sith Empire and I think there's some validity to that with how many older public um, uh, artifacts that they're dropping into the new canon like Ricotta Prime was dropped into the actual galaxy map and stuff uh, shortly after The Force Awakens was dropped Uh, but it doesn't have to be the Sith Empire like that's just my preference like you know Mm. really all I'm looking for is is an interesting story that hasn't been told before uh, so the news, while I think it's the general, it's I think the news basically sets up the general plot line. If this is all that there is in terms of conflict, uh, I might fall asleep in the theaters. We don't know, you know, it, it, could, it could happen. It's you know, stranger things have occurred. Yeah, like I think it is tricky. So obviously, it does sound very similar to the like, backdrop to um, the original trilogy, um, but. Like I, I think a lot of it will depend on how it's executed. Yeah. And I, like, and I do think there's real potential in like showing how downright chaotic everything is, because in the original trilogy, obviously by that point the Galactic Empire was well, very well established, and like the worlds had taken over, they were completely subjugated, and imperial rule was just normal. Whereas at this point, like it's presumably going to be like a mad scramble to like recruit planets and get them on side like through either like negotiation or force. Um, so I do think there's potentially interesting stories to tell there. But like you say, there's also potential for it to be like wrote and been there, done that. Um, so fingers crossed they take it. Like in, they have an interesting angle, at least. Um, what, what did you think, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean, I agree that just from this report, it sounds like it could be. Um, like very bare bones similar to the original trilogy but we've been kind of getting hints from the aftermath trilogy um, particularly Empire's End that there's something bigger at work that was um, known to an extent by Palpatine he knew something was out there but it's like the unknown regions and there's some dark power out there that could be Snoke or could be something else entirely Um, it's being kind of set up in the supplementary material that could factor into the sequel trilogy. At least that's what Aftermath was kind of advertised as. Mm. Um, so we'll see. Um, I mean, there's there's always going to be confirmation bias with these kind of reports that if something sounds similar to what we've had before, it will kind of play into that and it will be written within that framework, if mm. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so there might be much more there, but if, if it's not already kind of in that framework of like this is what we understand star wars to be um at least the films then um it could be kind of looked over so yeah who knows i'm sure we'll see um i just don't want another i don't want another death star i'm so oh no <laughs> like if i <laughs> okay. see one more i'm walking out yeah no i will feel downright betrayed if that happens it's like just stop okay <laughs> stop it like, i i don't think you need any super weapons like just have like the first order have like a big ass army, <laughs> you know, like and like we're gonna use our military might. Right? Like it's just lazy to keep going back to the same trope of like a big thing you can blow up. Like, mm. I understand why they do that, and especially I understand 
understand why they did it in The Force Awakens because mm-hmm, the that film is not Starkiller base, mm-hmm. um, which is why it infuriates me slightly when like I'll listen to reviews like on other podcasts and they just go on and on and on about how redundant and ridiculous it is and how it made it impossible to take the film seriously. And I kind of feel like shouting, you're missing the point! <laughs> <laughs> like, And then I feel like an ass. <laughs> so i wish i hadn't thought that um but yeah i'm hoping for the best and i always remind myself that ryan johnson is directing this and like based on my familiarity with his previous work i i think i can trust him to be anything but boring Mm -hmm. so fingers crossed on that basis (laughs) i'm hopeful but it's it's still there's always that little you know worry there yeah no sure it's natural to be apprehensive Especially like you, when you come to it with all this like wealth of knowledge from the old EU and everything, and you have these great ideas for the really interesting things they could do with this material, you know, and then it makes it more disappointing when they just go like in these really predictable directions. So yeah, like, I think it's natural that that's a fear. Um, right? Has everyone said everything they want to say on the state of the galaxy? Well, I I wondered if um, it was almost like The Force Awakens was playing into this um, expectation from the audience that the destruction of Starkiller Base was this huge blow to the First Order, but actually they have so much more going on and that was almost just like one part of it. Mm. Um, And this idea of like a huge army, we've almost been having it at that from like the idea of them taking children from you know, their infancy and training them to be stormtroopers, you could get this much deeper look into that as kind of their driving force. Um, yeah. Rather than just a super weapon, it's like, no, like they've actually been taking these huge amounts of children from families and um, creating something much more dangerous in a culture. So yeah. who knows? I think that'd be way more interesting. And I think it would also tie into everything that we've been hit, like that's come out through Empire's End because so much of that seems to be about the Empire needs children. Like, that is the party line. And, like, I don't see that message being hammered home again and again and again in the books if there's going to be nothing to come of it. Because, obviously, we know it's already feeding into the films with Finn and his background as a child soldier. And, yeah, I think we're probably going to see that explored on a much bigger scale. And I think that's so much more interesting. I think with if you know you're focusing on the people in the first order versus you know weapons or whatever kind of tech you know that guys like all the ships and stuff i think it's going to be much more interesting if they do focus on the people because these you know as as finn is and as they are they're children soldiers they're they weren't complicit you know in the first order from they were indoctrinated into it from a very young age and if these people are given an opportunity to rebel or like um, have their own lives, just like Finn did, you know, then you have this really interesting setup for, you know, merging the existing, like the resistance and, and you know, maybe a faction of the first order that defects or um, even if they could take over it in general, you know, like what can we see with that versus having this kind of like faceless war that they fight against each other, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. That like really increases the stakes, I think. So if they really like drive that home that these people were taken as children and brainwashed, because I don't think the Force Awakens really did that beyond Finn himself. The other stormtroopers, they're still treated like cannon fodder. And you don't feel like emotionally attached to like random stormtrooper who gets shot by Finn from the TIE Fighter. Like and we're not meant to. But I think they really do that. They establish the human side of like those 
seemingly faceless people on a much bigger scale. I think there's real story potential there. Um, right, and then the final news item is that Star Wars Celebration is going to be skipped in 2018. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and this comes from the official Star Wars Celebration website. While we might be in the thick of getting ready for Star Wars Celebration Orlando, it's never too early to start thinking about when the next celebration will be. Celebration is the official, definitive Star Wars event with entertainment, interactive experiences and exclusives that can only be found at this Lucasfilm production. <laughs> There's the ultimate community fan gathering as well. And friends will want to start planning to be together again to commemorate everyone's favourite saga. <laughs> Next official celebration is slated for a location and date soon to be announced in 2019. Whew, right. So this basically means they're skipping Celebration Europe. So it's like, <laughs> oh man! <laughs> yeah, and I also like how they basically announce that they're skipping 2018 by not saying that they're skipping 2018, but making it clear that they're skipping 2018. It's a rather cheery update, you know? Just like, by the way, we're not giving you what you want. I hope you like it. You could have it in the year after on a completely different landmass that it will be extremely expensive for you to travel to. Happy times. <laughs> that That's basically the underlying message. No, like, this has happened before. I think they... um skipped it in 2013 or maybe 2014 i'm not sure they like it's not unknown occurrence for this to happen basically um so yeah like it's not that's like it's not like a big revelation it's just a bit of a bummer for those of us in europe um yeah do we have like theories or ideas as to why this might be guys i'm really i'm just curious as to why they're skipping it in the year that uh the last jedi is supposed to yeah, I mean, like, why are they skipping it when it right after the Last Jedi or or around that time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is for me that is the big question. Like, I have I have theories, but they're just like really mm-hmm. wild speculations that aren't really based in reality. I think my theory for the primary reason is probably that I think they would have to do it very close to when the Han Solo movie comes out. So, mm-hmm. like either just before or just after and mm-hmm. from a commercial point of view that doesn't make much sense um because like it needs to be at a certain level of distance from it in order to like treat it as a big reveal moment so like hey here's the first trailer which is obviously what they're going to do with the last jedi at celebration 2017 but obviously if celebration happens like two weeks before the han solo movie comes out that's not going to work. It's just going to yeah, be like, yeah, yeah. we actually need to be on the international promotional tour right now rather than at this Star Wars convention. Um, so I think it's mainly going to be to do with that, but there certainly could be other reasons as well. Like, I'm sure there's probably <laughs> going to be lots of awkward questions to answer around The Last Jedi. Regardless of foil hats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> regardless of whatever happens in The Last Jedi, I'm sure that there's going to be lots of like controversy and heated debate and stuff and so an element of it might well be like we don't want to do that to ourselves guys <laughs> <laughs> just don't just don't do it leave them time to cool off yeah <laughs> so yeah i think that's a plausible theory um what did you think about this Kirsty? um i didn't think too much of it to be honest i mean mm-hmm. kind of delaying to 2019 it makes sense because 
that's when they're talking about Star Wars land being opened. So I would expect it to be in Anaheim again. Yes. Um, and then for it to be absolutely insane there. And I probably would want to avoid Star Wars land because it'd be too busy to even enjoy it. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're kind of right. If they keep the Han Solo movie coming out at May, and I know we'd heard rumors that they were going to de- delay it until December, but then there hasn't been anything about that recently. Mm. Um it just wouldn't make sense to release like the trailers so close to it. They're going to want to get that out much earlier. Um, yeah. Kind of similar to how we would we would have had The Last Jedi being promoted as Rogue One was hitting theatres. Um, mm. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out yeah. um, and whether there will be any kind of brand confusion or anything. So, yeah. yeah. It just makes sense as well to have a break every now and then so that the hype kind of stays if, if people know that there's going to be one every year then it becomes less special almost so yeah that is yeah. true like and i know there's a bit of a backlash to like last year's celebration so i think some people just felt it wasn't substantial enough um so like kirsty and i went and we really enjoyed it but like it is true that it was lacking in terms of like big news for example like and even the rogue one panel which was meant to be like the big showcase panel I think I didn't go to that, um, but a lot of the people who did, they seemed underwhelmed because they only ended up getting like a one minute teaser. And obviously there were complicated reasons for that, mainly reshoot <laughs> associated reasons. Um, but yeah, like it was a bit of a squib, basically. And I think they'd want to avoid that. They'd want to make sure there's lots to say and lots of news to put out. So yeah, and like, and it also just means that I think this year's celebration is going to be totally badass. And Kirsty is very lucky to be going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. But um, for me, like, um, you know, last year, and I think the same was true for you, Rachel. It was mm-hmm. our first celebration, so yes. I didn't really have a huge frame of reference or a ton of expectation. Mm, sure, so it was more just about going and meeting other fans and enjoying whatever was there. Mm. Um, but I think there was such a huge expectation raised from like the year before where there was the whole Chewie we're home moment that mm-hmm. you know has almost like become mythologized in Star Wars fandom like collective consciousness that like as you can, you're going to have this real tearjerker moment where you see something on screen that you never thought you would see but you know we're gonna, we're now getting into the routine of having a new Star Wars film every year it's going to be very different yeah um, so yeah no um, totally well, I'm going to continue to tinfoil hat in the corner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's your tinfoil hat theory? Go on. Uh, what's my tinfoil hat theory? Uh, I honestly think it's because no matter which, I do think it it's part of its promotional theory. Part of it's like the promotion for sure, right? Like there is a very practical reason behind it. And I, I don't doubt that for a second. Um, but I also do think that if you are there trying to promote your hand solo film or if you're there trying to promote another film, um, and if there's any sort of controversy from The Last Jedi hanging over, uh, people are going to want to talk about The Last Jedi yeah. instead of uh, instead of the Han Solo movie or anything else related to Star Wars, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it's months later, like as we've seen online, this stuff is, the outrage is perpetually self-sustaining. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it will be even more so if there's any sort of controversy after The, the, the Last Jedi. So I do think that there is this... There, there's the practical reason, but I also think there's a practical reason in the sense of like brand protection. Yeah, you know, like it's just we don't want to clog up what should be a celebration with controversy or having to field questions about this. So we're preemptively, you know, axing it so we can focus on the actual creative end of Star Wars. Yeah, uh, that sounds very plausible to me. 
like I say, obviously that is just speculation, but it sounds like very realistic speculation. Um, it reminds me of something I, I heard Jason Ward mention once, like who obviously does making Star Wars. Um, and I think he said that like any story he released on Rogue One, it would like struggle to get like a third of the interest that any story on The Last Jedi would. Mm-hmm. So right. like the interest in the main saga films is just many magnitudes greater than the interests than the interest in the Star Wars story films. Um, yeah. and, and that's just inevitable. Um, and I'm sure no one is more conscious of that than Lucasfilm themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've kind of seen that in the fan reaction since Rogue One, right? That everyone was excited to see the movie. Lots of us really enjoyed it, um, discussed it briefly, but then everyone kind of reverted back to speculating and analysing the sequel trilogy. Yeah, um, There's just so much more hype around it, um, partly because it's the Skywalker saga, like people have been emotionally invested in this family for decades. Um, but also it's a trilogy, like The Force Awakens was designed to hook you Whereas Rogue One is very much a standalone and you can enjoy it and go back to it and discuss the characters, but there's not this intense is, speculation that kind of plays into that. Yeah. yeah, that internet culture of obsessing over the minutiae and debating angrily with others. Um, the Force Awakens definitely played into that. So, Absolutely. Right, and that brings us to our spotlight section. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is going to be a very interesting and dare I say, deeply insightful look <laughs> to the phenomenon known as Raylo. Um, okay. I, yeah. Drum roll. Why for exactly? Um, I, I wish I could do sound effects, to be honest, because that would be the point. Um, but yeah, like I really strongly doubt that if you're listening to this, you don't know what Raylo is. Um, but just in case you are listening for the first time and you really don't know, it's basically a ship, so a relationship between Rey and Kylo Ren from Star Wars. Um, and yeah, so this discussion, it's basically going to be an odyssey, um, starting off by exploring what happens to those characters in The Force Awakens and how they relate to each other and how they interact in that film. And then there's also going to be some discussion of like the wider fandom and where we can realistically see this dynamic going in the future. Um, and this discussion is like one of the main reasons why we really wanted um, Shy and Natasha on for this show, because as they mentioned at the start, they have both like written like very long and very detailed and insightful posts or metas. Um, exploring this dynamic from like all kinds of different angles, so like mythological, um, archetypal, um, like cultural, like and so on. Like there's so many alls. Please <laughs> 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 summarize them all. Um, but yeah, so basically they're the best people I can think of to have on for this discussion. So it should be really, really interesting. Um, and like Kirsty and I were obviously going to have things to say but for the most part we're probably going to let um, Natasha and Shai take the floor here because yeah they, they have just done such incredible prep for this <laughs> and they have awesome things to say yeah well we're, we're data miners and we're both uh, we both like coming prepared you know and it's uh, <laughs> it, it's a little we're both a little bit extra on it um, so, yeah. <laughs> So to put it mildly, so so that prep shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Yeah. Like, how long get, um, did you say Death and the Maiden was again? Oh, it's like seventeen thousand words. Like, that, it's 
I wrote it uh, in a week on a coffee bender. Uh, <laughs> and I still can't believe I actually did that. It's just like, I, I, if you had told me like, you know, five years ago that I would spend, I would use my university degree to, uh, to write 17,000 words about why two people might theoretically kiss. Um, <laughs> I would have called you a fool. <laughs> I would have thought there's no way I would do that. Uh, but I did it. Um, and, and now it's attached to my name and it's, it's out there. So I might as well own it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Same over here. I wrote <laughs> way too much and it was like a wine fueled grace so. <laughs> no i want i want to thank you both because um after watching the force awakens i tried talking to some of my in real life friends about what we'd seen and that did not go so well <laughs> uh, so uh, i'd never been part of a fandom online before but i just felt compelled to go to google and search for what other people might be saying about this and thank you for making me feel less crazy because well, it was like okay other people saw this you know well, yeah it, it's just like well the thing with the like we talked about speculation before too and the thing is so i'm um rachel i know that you and i differ a little bit on our opinions on on, on Raylo or or how we think it's going to work out right and like i'm a very cautious speculator um i'm super cautious uh, compared to a lot of other a lot of other fans uh, and i tend to and the reason why i wrote i first wrote the force bonds essay and then death and the maiden afterwards which was more popular uh because i think it was more accessible because uh, force bonds the force bonds meta dealt specifically with like you know niche eu canon stuff uh uh, but it was just I was getting really frustrated because uh, the, the, the things that I was speculating uh, were not that outlandish. Like it was basically when I speculate, I, I base it purely on on in-text examples that have already existed. Like the stuff is already there. I'm not making, you know, um, it's not circumstantial evidence. Uh, so I was getting really frustrated that online it was just being completely ignored and, you know, uh, shoved to the side by both uh uh, by both left-leaning fans, uh, left-leaning fans uh, of Star Wars who are big into social justice and like the the Reddit fanboys, essentially, you know, uh, who tend to have this uh, very interesting opinion, to put it lightly, about female fans. Uh, so I, I was basically like, fine, all right, I'll just I'll just write it all out and and get it out there to explain my viewpoint. Um, and then it turned into seventeen thousand words. So, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> um, right, guys, are we ready to dive into a discussion of oh, this dynamic in Force Awakens? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, do it. Sorry, that's my. <laughs> I'm gonna guess that had something, some kind of merit to it, based on your laughter. So, uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna roll with that. Um, right. So obviously in The Force Awakens, the first time we have some sense that Kylo and Rey are going to cross paths is when Kylo is on the finalizer and poor little Lieutenant Mitika having the worst job in the entire galaxy. He has to go up and tell Kylo Ren that everything's gone wrong and it's really bad. And that there's also a girl involved. And then Kylo reacts and says, what girl? Mm -hmm. And he's really extra about it. <laughs> um, to put it mildly um, yeah guys so what do we think about this like so like he clearly has some kind of he has a very visceral reaction to knowing that there's a girl involved is this like is he just deeply sexually frustrated or is there something <laughs> more to it than that 
there's there's a possibility of it being deeply sexually frustrating. <laughs> I, 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 that's that's not that far of a stretch. Um, but like I think there's I, I think it's important to point out like in a really general terms like the context of Kylo Ren himself before mm. leading up to this right in the context yeah. of of Ray herself too um, to point out like because it's uh, because. Kylo Ren has a pattern before this, right? Which makes it even more, the, the difference when the girl is mentioned even more apparent. Like, so he's very, he's seething with rage and he's like, he's like prone to violence, um, but we don't actually see him flip out until like Ray is mentioned and not even by name, right? Like, it, like when he doesn't, when he does inflict violence, it's, it's, it's really casual. Um, and it's also just like, it's this casual sort of brutality that's very depersonalized and also kind of cocky. And this comes across both in the movie and in the, the novelization itself, which I have been going through chapter by chapter over the past year to try to see if there's any more, you know, context clues that I can glean from it. Um, but the general sense that you get from Kylo Ren is that no one can challenge him. So he hurts others with emotion. Um, and the best examples of this are with Lor Santeca um, uh, and Poe Dameron, who has the identical scene to Ray in the interrogation scene, which we'll get into later, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but he he essentially is he's he's very he's very violent in a, in a cold sort of way. Uh, and leading up to this, like Ray is essentially a stand-in for the Jedi. She's not officially titled as a Jedi, just like Kylo is not officially titled as a Sith. Uh, but she's a scavenger, right? She's 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 essentially a nobody. Uh, leading up to this, and all that's happened is she's really had the the, the misfortune of, of getting caught up with this droid by accident, really, on on some backworld backworld water of, of Jakku, right? So it's it's he has no reason to get upset over her, uh, and uh, and really in the in the lead up to him flipping out on this 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 poor you know uh, lieutenant who's just who's just doing his job, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he after so so like like. BB-8 goes into hiding. Um, Kylo is really disinterested in the task, right? Like he he acts like it's beneath him, um, mm -hmm. and he doesn't. He wants it done, but he doesn't get really personally involved. Like he delegates part of this task to 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 Hux in 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 the novelization, and he hates Hux. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's a real animosity between the two of them, uh, and he doesn't. When he does, when it's mentioned that the girl got involved, and not even by name, he gets really, really wrapped up in it. Like, why is he? Why does he care about this girl? Like, there's, there's no reason for him to care about some nameless girl who is, who, who he doesn't even know what she is yet, right? Yeah. Um, but he, he flips out. Like, he grabs, he basically grabs the dude by the neck with the force, you know, and destroys a console. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's very, very weird. And there's definitely some, some like sexual subtext to the scene, <laughs> some phallic subtext to the scene that you get into. Um, and, and his increasing frustration and fixation on Ray, even though she's done nothing to deserve it, uh, speaks to something going on beneath the surface, which we find about later. And I think we'll find out more about in The Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Nat, you might have some thoughts or you might disagree with me on this or. No, what do you I think, think I think we'll get into it a little bit more later about what the possibility is. Like, would he have, you know, what what kind of thing does he understand about the girl that we don't. Right. Um, but I, I love how that the shot where he's, you know, holding Mitaka by the neck just goes immediately into Ray 
with her arm in the Millennium Falcon fixing it. You know, like <laughs> there's a really great like if you didn't know who the girl was, there's the girl, right? Um, yeah. So it, it they kind of mirror each other even before they meet, which is a huge part of the story. Like the force is pu- pushing them together in a way. Like, and I think JJ said in the commentary they're like two trains on a collision course. Mm-hmm. Is that? Um, so yeah, like there's this kind of lead up there. That's really, in- it was really interesting to watch unfold without knowing anything about it because you're like, uh, okay, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's pretty much all for that scene. Like I almost thought that he, like that he, I think Pablo discredited it, but I think he, like when leading up to the film, when I first saw the film for the very first time, like I thought he had known her from before, um, which yeah. is, I guess, th- I guess this is where that like the whole Jedi Academy AU sort of trope came about, because mm-hmm. um, it because it does sort of hint that there is this connection to them before, or he's he knows about her in some sort of nauseant way, right? Um, and yeah, and just the way that it's set up it made me really really suspicious. But again, like Pablo sort of discredited the idea that they've met be- that they've met before, so yeah. I don't know why he acts that way other than maybe it's the filmmaker's knowledge and not Kylo Ren's knowledge. Like they're setting it up to convey something through the subtext mm. rather than the character himself. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, that's what it struck me as that um, Kylo didn't know her and JJ kind of confirmed that in the commentary, but it was this inevitability that they wanted to build up in the narrative of what, what was it he said? Like these two pieces that come together. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that there's this, and you can kind of see this in the symbolism throughout the film that there's this kind of yin yang component where they're almost stronger together. Like something happens when these two share scenes together, mm-hmm. um, and you can see that in the the symbolism of like he's dark with a little light, and then she's light with a little dark, and mm-hmm. it kind of sets up this thing that will be explored throughout the trilogy of how they're going to play off each other and affect each other's development. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like what um shy alluded to earlier about um <laughs> me and her having different like views on how Raylo is going to play mm-hmm. out like it's basically because like shy explained she sticks very closely to what's on screen so what's solid and what we already know whereas i have like the unfortunate habit of like seeing hints and like forming <laughs> these like wild theories <laughs> so basically there's a much greater margin for error with i do than what shy does you're a gambler and I'm, I'm a Scrooge. That's what's yeah. happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think that actually summarizes it quite well. Like, it's funny. So I'm not at all a gambler in real life. <laughs> when it comes to theorizing about Star Wars, I'm like, ah, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. suggest wild things. Like, it's like, I like the idea that we know Luke was looking for something. Like mm-hmm. prior to like his exile, they were like searching around the galaxy for like old Jedi lore and like all this stuff to do with the Force and everything. I like the idea that like Ray is some kind of like known quantity and that she's like going to be an important figure in terms of what happens to the Force going forward, and that mm-hmm. Luke and Ben were searching for her. Like, and then everything went horribly wrong and what happened with Ben and the Academy happened and Luke went off into exile, etc. But then, like, over the course of The Force Awakens, like, as Kylo sees how powerful he is and is like, where on earth did this come from? Or where in the galaxy did this come from? (laughs) Um, Like, then he's, like, gradually thinking, hang on, like, this reminds me of something. But, yeah, that is wild extrapolation. (laughs) It's probably completely wrong. But, I'm with tinfoil, <laughs> totally. 
I, I like tinfoil though. It's it's very shiny and it's very attractive. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I think I'm like a cat, you know? It's like <laughs> shiny, shiny. <laughs> um, the, I'm the I, I really do like the speculation part. And like I do have I guess it's for me it more it's just like I keep the actual what I call it theorizing and, and speculation separate, I guess. Right? It's it's not even a real distinction. It kind of means the same thing, right? Uh but for me it's like so there's what I wrote in Death and the Maiden about one-sided Raylo and being very, very conservative in my predictions. And then the other side of me is like, yeah, I want them to find Sith temples. I want Ray to go full dark side. She's going to be a <laughs> Sean. You know, yeah. Kylo is going to go full Sith and there's going to be a Renperer. And it's just like, it's completely, <laughs> completely inane. That, that's and what fan fiction is for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fan yeah. for. Um, so there's that side of me as well, you know, yeah. but I, I try to keep the two a little bit separate. But that's why I thought Death and the Maiden was so great, because for all the controversy that it generated, you really were just analysing what was there in the story as it currently exists. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even like you were jumping ahead and speculating too much in terms of what's going to happen. It was, this actually happened. The director intentionally put this there. Let's talk about <laughs> why that might be. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And on that note, that's actually a very good time to move on to the first time when Kylo and Ray actually meet, which oh, is the in the forest on Takadana <laughs> on that magical moonlit afternoon. No. Um, <laughs> so basically, there is the Battle of Takadana raging in the background. Mm-hmm. Like Kylo's told that, like a girl headed west, I think, um, mm-hmm. with the droid. Um, and he's not really interested in the mention of the droid, but he's very interested in the mention of the girl. Um, and so he stalks off, and then, like, he does his, like, creepy, I'm a Sith Lord thing, <laughs> like, by lighting it's... up his sword and, like, forced freezing Ray and kidnapping Ray. And now Shy <laughs> can talk about this scene in a much more elegant and wonderful oh, way. Oh, gosh. So yeah, because... go! Oh, it's the. So it's like, I. It's not the, I'd have to say that this, like, it's it's the quote-unquote bridal carry scene, and I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit responsible for that term. Um, like, the ridiculous thing about this whole scene is that when the whole first thing came out, I got accused of creating the trope. Uh, <laughs> when I haven't, like, I would love to be the, the originator of the bridal trope carry. That would be awesome. Like, that's, that's a, a huge thing behind there, but I'm not. I'm just talking about it. Um, so, it's this, it, the, the the bridal carry scene, as I like to, you know, shorten it to, uh, or the fight on, on, or when he abducts Ray, uh, it's, I personally consider it the most important scene between Ray and Kylo Ren because of the subtext and how it moves from subtext to actual text, like the actual action. Um, but I know it's probably not the most, it's not the favorite scene or the, not the most, um, controversial scene um in in the force awakens that would probably be uh the interrogation scene itself which we'll get into in just a bit um the thing about the to know about uh about this before i get into the the actual breakdown of the scene is that so it's essentially a bridle bridle carry trope when he picks her up um, and takes her abducts her back to his ship um, and the bridal, uh, bridal carry trope is when a man carries a woman in his arms, like a groom is carrying a bride over the threshold of a door in that door can either be literal or symbolic. Um, there's a lot of black and white imagery within the actual scene itself. Um, and the woman is usually explicitly coded as feminine while the man is explicitly coded as masculine. And it almost 
almost always, like 99.9% of the time, foreshadows a romantic relationship between the two characters. Um, and this trope can be part of like the villainous crush trope. Uh, so where the villain crushes on the protagonist, uh, which is very, you know, very pertinent for Raylo itself. Um, but it shouldn't be confused with uh, Pieta or Peta, uh, plagiarism, which is where the person being carried is injured or dying or dead. Uh, and a lot of the times when you see people um, uh, bashing the scene or the bridal carrier saying, you're reading it too much into this, you know, like Chewie carried Finn this way, right? That's actually Pieta, right? Like that's, that's a different trope altogether. Um, so the two should not be confused. Um, so it's the scene itself with that, with that trope in mind, with that background of the trope in mind, uh, the scene is inherently, it's inherently sexual, um, not romantic. Like there's this, there's this distinction between the two I think we should make, uh, but it's, it's sexual because there's no logical or canonical reason for Kylo Ren to be acting the way he does beyond subtext uh, as to where the film is going and like literally thinking with his dick uh (laughs) sorry to say it like that but that's that's basically what it is right and he's 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 committing so he's committing raptus um and he's he's coded it in this scene he's uh, i'll get into raptus in a bit but he's coded as as death and hate or or hades um, and Ray is coded as the bride and maiden. And later on, Nat's actually got this really interesting bit about um, the heroine's journey and archetypal symbolism and the maiden itself. Um, and because the two of them are coded this way, it fits really nicely into the idea of the awakening of sexuality or the awakening of the force that we get in the interrogation scene. Um, but the the trope is then reversed, like this whole idea of the bridal carry trope. and um, and the idea of Raptus is 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 subverted when Ray overpowers him, right? Which is actually really nice to see. Um, so when I first like we're going to get a little bit nitty gritty here, um, and really really niche, I guess, because literary symbolism is is my thing. It's what I studied for for years and years and years. Uh, but when I first wrote Death and the Maiden, there was like a lot of confusion over the difference between like something that was being portrayed as romantic, something that was sexual and narrative sensuality. Um, and, and these are three different things altogether. Like romance is, is pretty self-explanatory, I think. Um, and usually it's something positive, right? Unless it's described as otherwise. Um, sexuality is is also pretty, you know, cut and dry. And, and narrative sensuality itself is the way that the text has been written. Like if, if the text is, is beautiful or if it's lush or if it's erotic, but it's not actually talking about sex itself, that's narrative sensuality. Um, and on one side of this whole Raylo debate, you had people claiming that the bridal carry scene was not sexual at all. Um, and that the narrative sensuality of the text uh, and the fairy tale motifs within it were getting mistaken for sexual tension, right? Um, and then on the other side, you had people claiming that the sexual subtext was was there and that people who didn't see it was, were crazy. Um, and I guess I was part of that cohort. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, or I wrote 17,000 words on it. So I guess I, <laughs> I, I, must, I must mess up to that. Um, and the third faction said that there, there was sexual subtext there, but it was inherently negative, and that's where the antis came in. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to clarify before I got into the actual tropes and the archetypes themselves within this scene is that narrative sensuality, like the way that the text is written, like if it's an erotically text or and sec- actual sexuality, 
um, can coexist in the same space within a text. And by text, I mean a movie or a piece of media or, or whatever you're viewing at the time. It's just that it makes the text more complex than in a very, very black and white narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a really great example of the narrative sensuality and sexuality coexisting in the same space would be actually the, the vampire or vampire genre of literature, uh, specifically gothic horror. Um, like Dracula, not Blade, not stuff like Blade or Action, because that's a different type. That's a different type of vampire. It doesn't fit this, so we'll, we won't focus on that. Um, and uh, I guess I'll pull up a, a one more quote from from actually from Death and the Maiden, uh, where I talk about uh, narrative sensuality, just to really uh, to solidify where this is going. So in Death and the Maiden, I said in vampire movies. The narrative sensuality comes through the world building and the motifs being applied, um, i.e. the symbolism behind the color red and in the biting of the neck, which isn't strictly narrative sensuality because it can very easily veer into sexuality itself. But it's usually used as a stand in for the seduction of the innocent and loss of virginity or penetration. Um, In TFA, uh, examples of narrative sensuality would be an aggressive predatory way that Kylo stalks around Ray. It would be in Ray getting lost in the woods twice while dressed in white and in in Ray's theme song, which is rife with fairy tale motifs. Uh, All these little threads through the text of a film uh, work together to create narrative sensuality, which people are picking up on. Like it's, it's, they're not pulling it out of thin air. Like as mentioned, I'm super conservative with my actual like guesstimations. Like I don't, I'm very uncomfortable with these up in the air tinfoil hat sort of theories. And I like my tinfoil, you know, nice and flat and laid on the ground where everyone can see it. Um, So but if you're looking, the reason why I say this scene is so important is because the the tropes behind it and the archetypes behind it are so unequivocally, you know, sexual. Like there's, and they have been for a really, really long time. Uh, and it's also really important because it takes the, that subtext, that sexual subtext, and moves it into actual canon um, artifacts like you know ideas of force bonds or Jedi mind tricks and where the plot itself is going like you know it's the two trains colliding you know as we discussed about before um, <coughs> pardon me I'm, I'm talking like a mile a minute here and I've got so much <laughs> I've got so much to say about it um, yeah. and I, I'm trying to before I get into the archetypes and, and the symbolism bit because this is another whole section on it Nat was there anything you wanted to add to my spiel about gothic horror and like literature before that or christy or rachel's or anything you want to say before i move on because i'll I'll start talking again (laughs) (laughs) i will go first uh if that's okay um i think that in terms of the scene specifically we need to i think we need to look at like what the setup is for it a little bit probably maybe a little bit later um but just her having the vision of the force back immediately before she runs into the woods. So she's just seen this person and been introduced to them. And then he stalks her down and finds her in the woods. And there's this, you know, there's all these sort of like little, um, great little bits and pieces. Like when she looks up and sees his shuttle flying overhead or when, um, you know, she first hears the lightsaber go off and, and, um, you know, sees him and similar to in the force back where he kind of appears behind that around from behind that tree so there's there's this really they, they just set it up with a huge amount of of um subtext there even before they have them interact so we already know that there's a really powerful interaction going on here and then on top of that the symbolism of that scene and, and the bridal carry just it's so 
built in and baked in even to the point where you know john williams song for when he's taking her is the abduction of ray which kind of mirrors the abduction abduction of persephone which is like a work of it's like been repeated throughout works of art throughout the beginning of time and you know this is a space opera so they're going to keep that kind of classical symbology in the in the whole narrative um so you're not reading into it it's it's there and it exists for a reason hmm. yeah so that's my addition to that Wow. Yeah, I just think this um, all this discussion about that scene in particular is, and I guess it's true for the interrogation scene as well. But it's thrown up all of these interesting discussions in fandom about what is considered romantic and what's the difference between a writer applying subtext to a story and um, a character themselves being conscious of their behaviour or acting in a way that they would consider romantic. Because I don't think that's that's what's happening here, but in some of our arguments, they've been kind of misconstrued as us implying that Kylo is acting in a romantic way, which is mm -hmm. something I don't believe anyone has ever said in a series. Yeah, I, I don't think he's conscious of it. I, I don't think he's like maybe on some, some you know, dick level, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's conscious of it. Uh, but really, I don't think that the the idea of sexuality or, or seeing Ray is like, you know, uh, a romantic, like a, this is significant other. I don't think that's what he's thinking in that scene. Like it's, I, I, I don't like at least not right then and there. I mean, maybe by the end of the film, but yeah. <laughs> not right. there. It's writers applying these techniques both visually and through the dialogue that set up this possible romantic foreshadowing. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not Kylo being conscious of his own behavior in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and there are examples from the interrogation scene as well. When he says certain things, people are maybe reading into them and applying motives to his behavior that are probably not there because it's the writers trying to convey something to the audience as opposed to Kylo conveying something to Ray. Mm. Yeah, he's not conscious of them. So we're still on the bridal care. Uh, <laughs> it's a long scene and it's a scene that I have a lot to say about. Um, so the earlier I mentioned that um, Kylo is committing raptus, right? Um, and so essentially what's going on in the scene beyond the, the, the general bridal carry trope and why is Kylo doing this in the way that it's been set up, um, the act of carrying a kidnapped bride through a door and into a bed, um, which in, this, in the film is visually mirrored by Kylo literally carrying Rey across the threshold of a shuttle onto a reclining interrogation chair. Um, so that's essentially what he's doing. He's uh, carrying a kidnapped bride. Um, and the general term, like culturally, for what he's doing is raptus. Um, in specifically, rapito, if you are viewing the scene as inherently negative, which I don't, I'll get into that in a second, um, and, or bridal kidnapping. Um, and raptus is Latin for seized, and in the Roman law, it was a term that covered crimes of seized property, including seized women, because women were considered property at the time. Uh, and it usually refers to um, any sort of literal seizure, again, what Kylo is doing. Um, and rapito, which is just related to this, is a Latin term for large-scale abduction of women for either marriage or enslavement. And this is where the controversy comes in, right? Uh, so in common English, this term is translated to rape. Um, Kylo's abduction to Ray for Ray would be classified as an actual bridal kidnapping, which is distinguished from Rapido in that it's a single man abducting a single woman who he wishes to marry. Um, sometimes culturally, depending upon the region where this happened, uh, it's you know, they're the man is accompanied by friends and relatives who support this endeavor, and it's very, very, it's very stylized and it's very much um, 
a spectacle, right? Like it's very much a ritual when it goes on, right? Um, and and the act of bridal kidnapping or raptus um, or rapido can be symbolic or literal, um, and it's an actual thing, right? Like it's been it's been practiced, you know, in, in multiple different cultures for thousands of years, and it actually continues to happen to this day in certain parts of the world. Um, and the imagery of uh, the imagery of, of, of raptus, I'm going to use that as the general term because it, it encompasses both like the bridal kidnapping and rapido and all the little variations. And it's just easier to refer to it by one word. Um, so the act of raptus is is hard coded into Western culture. Um, and you see echoes of it in modern in the modern practice of carrying the bride across the threshold of a door. You know, like it doesn't happen at all, at all weddings, um, but it does happen sometimes, right? And uh, I, earlier I mentioned that uh, Kylo was coded as death or, or, or Hades in this, and, and Rey is coded as the maiden or Persephone. And that's because um, Raptus is, is what happened in that story as well. Like the idea of, of Hades uh, of kidnapping. Right. Um, and the Nat, you actually had some really interesting thoughts about this so in terms of the the uh, abduction itself and the theme. Yeah. Um, I have, should I wait to talk about the heroine's journey or do you want to have an interlude here about it? Um, uh, it's, all, it's all up to you. Right. Like I could I could. I could I could have a have a a, a, a bone to pick with the with the way that this with the way that this is the scene has been viewed, which I can get out right now, and then okay. you can talk about the mother and the crone. Like I can do that. Yeah, um, we'll, go, we'll go on to that next. Because I'll put some I'll give you guys some context for the Hades Persephone's myth uh, Persephone myth as it stands in modern day um, narrative structure, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, if you like on, online. A lot of the time, uh, I mean, uh, Christy and Rachel, you, you've talked about this before. Like we've all talked about it. There's this, there's the Raylos or people that people people that like Raylo are often seen as pariahs, both by men and, and other women, um, for for what is you know basically put off as like you know everyone says like so Kylo assaulted Ray, you know, <laughs> in a movie for children, Kylo yeah. assaulted. Um, you know, it, it's there's, you know, and I, and I want to, and people often point to the interrogation scene as where uh, she's assaulted, right? Like beyond the idea, beyond the regressive idea of saying that, you know, for your first Star Wars movie with your first heroine, you're you're going to have her assaulted in a movie made for five year olds. Like that's a real pick me up. Um, beyond my opinions on that. Like if you wanted to actually, if I was looking at this, like, you know, objectively, and I wanted to make a, if you wanted to make a case for the idea that Kylo assaulted Ray as, as is often, you know, as detractors often say online, I guess you can make a case for it for it here in the, in the bridal carry scene, because there's actual precedent in the act of raptus for rapido and bridal kidnapping for what it denotes in a very, very literal sense, you know, like you're, you're literally kidnapping women for sexual purposes. Um, but it's important to note that even though the scene is where the subtext makes its jump to the literal text, it's still predominantly subtext. And the entire act of raptus is turned on its head almost immediately after it's committed. Uh, so the subtext of this scene is that, you know, Kylo is kidnapping a bride and carrying her across the threshold for what stands in as a bridal bed, which is the interrogation chair. Um, but the, the literal text of the scene, like the canon text of the scene is that, so there's an attack going down, it's a war zone, and that Kylo is a Sith in training. And I mean, he's basically a Sith in all but name. He's not actually a Sith, but that's 
what he's a stand-in for. And uh, Rey is a Jedi in all but name. Like, she hasn't been named a Jedi yet, but we know she's Force-sensitive, you know? Um, and she's an enemy combatant who shot at him during battle. So he's taking her back to his base for questioning on critical intel during a time of open war. Um, and this is what we talked about earlier, whether it's, like, is Kylo conscious of the subtext behind his actions, right? Like, and, and probably, probably not. You probably, you get the idea that there's something else going on here, probably sexual, but it's, it's more from the filmmaker's point of view. Like, it's more like this is their doing and not Kylo's. Like, he's, I, I honestly doubt that he is thinking, yes, I will marry this woman right here. And then you know, he's probably thinking about the droid and Luke and his obsession with Vader um, and, you know, the old ways of the Force, which is a huge, huge thing for him. Like, he's really wrapped up in, in tradition in this really bizarre way. Um, and But it, I should also point out there's there's no actual... There's no actual bride here. That's subtext. There's no actual repito, um, which is what Kylo is oft, often accused of. And people need to understand that subtext does not equal little action. It's simply how a scene is coded, and coding can be subverted. Like we see this in, in, in Force Awakens. I mean, if if Kylo kidnapped Rey and she was, um, and by the end of the film she was unable to break free from him, and she was unable to overpower him, and Kylo remained dominant throughout. Um, I wouldn't be as really a fan of the dynamic um, because it was because Kylo's so overwhelmingly masculine and aggressive. Um, but 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 Ray beats the Ray beats the <laughs> she she beats the fuck out of him. You're how to believe that? <laughs> yeah, she she beats him. You know, the entire act of of, of, of Raptus is subverted when Ray regains her agency, literally on the bridal bed, or what is the stand-in for the bridal bed. Like she, like if you're looking at this from a subtext point of view, right, which is what I was trying to prove with Death and the Maiden, you know, Ray invades or penetrates Kylo's mind and rips his closest, you know, most vulnerable thoughts from him without his permission, escapes on her own without being saved by another man, like, you know, which would imply that she was a trophy, um, only to hand Kylo's ass to him at the very end of the movie uh, during a fight scene where she scars him with a phallic object. Like... <laughs> And so, so basically, it's and and the scarring with a phallic object is essentially a stand-in for if you if you want to get really really meta, it's a st- and like in, in terms of like literal, in terms of literary criticism, which again is I, I talk way too much about. Um, you know, the scarring with a phallic object is the breaking of a woman's virginity, except it's happening to Kylo. So it's you know she gets out of it like this. This is so people always are saying you know you're shipping her. Or they're talking about this dynamic as being one of abuse, right? But it's not really, you know, like it's mm. like there is elements of like, you know, violence there. But this is not the tale of a woman who's being brutalized by a man with no recourse from her abuser. You know, it's 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 essentially, you know, a female power fantasy. And it's actually really feminist in nature in that it allows Ray to turn the dyna- the power dynamics of, of, of an influential man who's part of this, you know, chauvinistic fascist coded organization completely on its head right like it subverts the dynamic it subverts the power dynamic in in a way that women in real life rarely get to experience and it's because of this that like a lot of women are so interested in Raylo and they live vicariously through Ray and her dominance over Kylo Ren you know it's it's this idea of, of female empowerment against impossible odds and coming out relatively unscathed, you know, on the, on the, like, like she, like nothing really happens to her except she's, she's knocked out with the force, you know, and he reads her mind a bit, which Jedi have been doing for, for a very long time. And yet I know ne- you never hear the same sort of, um, 
critiques against them for doing that. Um, and at the end, this powerful man who's tried to oppress her uh, is begging on his knees for her, essentially for her attention and for her forgiveness, um, which is which is really interesting. And it completely subverts all these these tropes that originally extended from a patriarchal Western society, right? And you know, I'll try to wrap up this 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 rant of mine, this little mini rant of mine, really quickly. But basically, I think there's this, especially in this scene, uh, and why and why so many why people who like Raylo like it, and why people who don't like Raylo really hate it. And so I think there's this fundamental misunderstanding on women who quote unquote ship Raylo, ranging from the idea that we refuse to see Finn as a romantic interest to the idea that we don't know what's best for us and we need to be shown the proper way to enjoy media, mm-hmm. lest we fall prey to the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear this from both men and other women, like they both do it. Uh, and there is this inherently patriarchal, and the, it, this is an inherently patriarchal idea, by the way. Uh, the notion that women cannot decide the proper way to view a text by themselves and need to be shown. Uh, and um, and to, to finally wrap it all up, in terms of this actual scene itself and why I think it's 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 feminism or it's got feminist uh, principles to it is that feminism, especially intersectional feminism, is about choice. It's about the choice to decide. Uh, to decide on how to do things on our own terms, both in our mind and our body, uh, with the knowledge that women that the experiences of women are not universal and they're dependent on multiple different factors. And Ray exemplifies this choice by essentially, you know, finding yourself in this situation, taking self-guided action, and turning archaic, archaic tropes on their head. So, yeah, I need to stop now before I continue <laughs> for another oh, three hours. Very yeah. profound. That was yeah. a very pretty- good run. <laughs> It's pretty funny in a way because it almost reminds me of the discourse that you still see thousands of years later on Hades and Persephone as a myth mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have certain iterations of that myth conveying Persephone as the more fearsome and revered character in the eyes of mortals as opposed to her husband, Hades. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that playing out now in this like modern iteration of that myth. Um, so it's like equally parts fascinating and frustrating that... Yeah. Um, humanity is still kind of having this conversation with itself it never ends <laughs> no it never ends I, i'd I, say I, oh sorry go ahead oh sorry yeah no i was just gonna say i find it really interesting um how throughout the force awakens like is only really through his relationships with ray and his father that you actually see kylo ren demystified um because obviously he's introduced as this like dark side badass who's to be feared who can freeze laser bolts in midair and he's just like the straightforward like easily detestable villain with no layers or no complexity but then through these relationships and through his interactions through his interactions with his father and ray like that's when you actually see him like all those layers are stripped back and it's like he's demystified gradually through their interactions and yeah like it's just interesting to me because I see so many people say about how disappointing Kylo Ren is and how he shouldn't have taken the mask off until the scene with his father because why would he take off a random girl and I and I guess I find all that frustrating because if you think it's just completely arbitrary that he takes off the mask when he's with Rey then you're missing the point (laughs) yeah yeah Uh Nat, did you want to go into your the heroine's journey? Because I know that you have thoughts on this as well that are a little bit different from mine on it. Sure. No, I think actually when I wrote my piece on Tumblr, I was 
basically doing it as an homage to Death and the Maiden because it had. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it validated quite a bit of what I had walked away the, with the, from the movie with. Um, and I was approaching the subject matter from the perspective of being, um, you know, into young adult or women centered fiction, which, you know, we can go back to the origins of the novel with, um, you know, Austin or um, the Bronte sisters and the creation of these narrative structures that are primarily women centered. Um, and we now currently have quite a few stories and more attention is being paid to female centered stories. But um, because the hero's journey is such an essential part of Star Wars, a lot of what I've seen is conflation of that hero's journey with Ray, when she in actuality has a heroine's journey. And um, there's a couple of different interpretations of what the heroine's journey is and why it is different and unique and distinct. It's a more feminine story. It's based in feminine myth. Um, one of the major arcs that you see that differs from the hero's journey is the what they call the descent into darkness. And that's where you get your Hades and Persephone's myth, where she's going down into the underworld. Um, and then also in Sumerian myth, you had Ishtar or Anana who went down into the underworld to plead with her sister for the um, restoration of her lover. So you have all these different stories throughout history where women go down into the underworld and it is a way for them to, um, it, it's basically their way of, you know, coming of age and learning about themselves and, you know, becoming more aware of the darkness within themselves or, and being able to master it. So that's like the integration with the shadow that's very commonly understood as to be an important part of Star Wars because Luke obviously integrates with the shadow by, you know, feeling compassion for his father and having this, um, you know, um, understanding that the dark side is within all of us. Right. So, um, huge things there. Um, but, one of the things that I think people have trouble understanding is that Kylo is Ray's animus. And to go into a little context, it's a Jungian archetype. Um, the anima and the animus are considered the kind of unconscious individual male and female that exist within female and male. So you have the anima in the hero's journey would represent the woman that you kind of like the hero would meet either as a prize or as an assistant to his tasks. So you have someone like... Um, and you see, sometimes see the woman is temptress, which is where she's, you know, she's kind of diverting the hero from his, his path or needs to be brought back to the path with him. Um, you'll see that in stuff like if you're familiar with Jason and Medea. So Medea was a witch that basically turned against her people to help Jason or Ariadne helping Theseus through the labyrinth because, you know, she knows it because she, that's her father so, um, built it. So there's all these kind of interesting stories for the hero's journey, but we don't really look very often at what the animus represents in female stories. And um, there's two ways of looking at the animus when it's basically a, a monstrous or shadow figure, which obviously Kylo is not just the animus, he's also Ray's shadow. He, you know, he is her antagonist. She's fighting him. But in fighting him, she doesn't have to necessarily do the whole slaying the dragon thing. She just has to, um, you know, she gets to that point almost, right? So that's really neat because she almost, she, she basically overpowers him and has him at her, you know, she's, she could kill him. She could have killed him, um, but she didn't. And so we know that they're going to have this really interesting relationship going forward, as JJ said. Uh, and uh, to go a little bit into how people view the animus, because I think a lot of what we're dealing with is projection of 
these story, there's two different kinds of ways of dealing with it. You either have like kind of what we call the beauty and the beast narrative where the monster husband, like animus is um, basically transformed or his curse is broken because he has a curse on him um, with the help of the heroine. Cause like the hero, the heroine's job is to save others um, it's not that she does it because she's obligated to, it's because she decides to do it because that's the the smartest thing to do, right? Um, or, the, or the good thing to do. That's what, you know, our job in life is to, you know, find ways to make the world better, basically, is what that's what the whole journey is there. Sorry if I'm rambling. Um, but and th- another way that people project on it is you'll find um, that the animus is uh, something we call facing Bluebeard which is a part of the heroine's journey where if you're familiar with the Bluebeard myth, it is basically that a woman falls in love with a man does, that has a Bluebeard. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't know much about him. Um, she's, she's kind of starry-eyed and like, you know, seduced by him. And then she ends up finding out that he's murdered his past wives and there's this whole really interesting symbology and archetypal psychology kind of um, nuance there but um, it creates the basic structure where the girl is taken by the bad guy and then the brother or the friend comes in and basically helps her escape and this is like the structure that gothic romance is based on um, where you always have like Dracula for example he comes and takes Mina so we have to get everybody like Van Helsing and the whole crew together to go take her back. Right. So people are kind of seeing it that way. They think, and I think a lot of the two, like the, the marketing kind of played into it with Finn shown fighting Kylo, right. With when we knew he'd be protecting Ray, but that was very obviously subverted when she ended up being the one to complete the fight and to actually um, deal with him. And, you know, obviously even though they were enemies in those moments, he was like Shais was saying, pleading to be her teacher. So there's <laughs> one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. So um, and I think another thing too is like people don't really get that whole anima animus stuff very well in with Star Wars, especially just because uh Luke's anima in A New Hope is his sister. So <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> which you know it, it wasn't written yet, so that you know retcon that right but they they kind of project that whole idea that there's this familiar familial blonde versus something where it's almost a hundred percent that the animus or the anima in the story is a romantic interest so that's just kind of how it goes right like yeah to, to tie it into the to the interrogation scene though and this idea that they're that she, you know the, they're familial and the sister you know like seriously is is the way that kylo looks at right is is that no, is that how your cousin? I don't know about you, but like, I just like that whole scene right there was just like for me. That was like, okay, yeah, I don't think they'll pull the you know she's your secret sister twice. Um, no, no. But no. I think that has been conflated, and so much of it comes back to that initial dynamic of Luke and Vader that people just kind of transferred that to Ray and Kylo. But and it's because Ray is kind of looking for her family, right? That's her motivation, but. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of another myth. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I've been trying to find another example of a heroine's journey where her animus is a cousin or brother that she's never met and wasn't previously aware of. That's just not how that would work. You know, no, like, it's like, like the, I, I guess 
I guess Arthurian myth and legend, right? Like with yeah. Arthur and his his sister, but that's told from Arthur's perspective. So like the that's not even really a, a heroine's journey because like um because was it Morgana? Is that her name? Um, <laughs> she's she's seen as the temptress, right? Yeah. So it's so yes, there is there is some sisterly brotherly love going on right there. Uh, but that's <laughs> you know that's not really a heroine's journey, you know. No, it's not a female centered story, which I think where a lot of the misinterpretation comes is from it that it's written specifically for women and women are kind of used to it right we we've read austin we've read you know wuthering heights we are we also we're just familiar with these tropes throughout history and we we also i think we understand that just like the hero's journey there is going to be a romantic arc for a heroine like a like wanting love and family is not a weakness it yeah is not, exactly it is not something that we 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 can sideline in a story. It's a part of our of our journey towards self-discovery is, you know, not only do we have to meet, you know, in order for us to meet ourselves and understand ourselves, we have to meet others that reflect those things back to us. And what's really interesting within the context of The Force Awakens is that Ray and Kylo have this really weird dynamic where she's filling every single gap that he's left behind, right? He, she's, you know, becoming close to his father. She's getting the Millennium Falcon. She's comforting his mother. She's becoming Luke's student where he was before. And so like, and he, you know, he has some understanding and notion of that. And he's changing because she's changing. Um, but they're kind of influencing each other back and forth across, across the narrative. And that's what an animus does. That's It's a reflection of the heroine in how she's becoming aware of the wider world around her and how she's you know, dealing and managing with all of the the conflicts that come from that. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what's key as well. Like the animus as an expression of part of Ray's inner psyche that she hasn't yet acknowledged and accepted. Yeah. Um, and obviously you see that begin to unfold in The Force Awakens, but just because she's defeated him physically, that's not the end of the story. There's still so much more to come. Um, but there's a lot, a lot of the backlash around the idea of Raylo has centered around um, this idea that well, Ray doesn't need a romantic partner because yeah. she's a strong female character without Kylo. It's like that is not the point of these kinds of stories. It's an expression of the the woman, the this young woman finding her place in the world and finding out who she really is through her interactions with other characters who are supposed to represent parts of her psyche. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And it's just like I don't, I don't. To, to tie it both into this and to my previous rant and everything, I don't see why Ray can't like with male characters and with the story of the male uh, the male character's journey. Like it's always they get everything right. Like they always get like they get the girl at the end. They get the the it's they they get to explore the different parts of themselves through the people they interact with. You know, and sometimes this includes romance. So why can't a, a female character explore that romance on her own terms, not written from a male perspective with a male gaze, right? But through her own will and choice and volition, right? Why is that, you know, so bad, right? And that's my really my general question for that. Like, why is there such a backlash from you know from 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 multiple different sectors to this idea that women can explore multiple angles of their personality? Um, so long as it's their choice, like what is it? What is so threatening about it being raised choice that you have to, you know, devote entire hate blocks to it? Or, you know, it's just something that I'm genuinely frustrated with and, and curious about at the same time. 
If I can add one thing to that, I think that's a lot about how people view her agency in the story. Like, I think a lot of the backlash that you get from the interrogation scene or from the bridal carry is that they feel like she's a victim, right? That she's not in control of the situation. When in reality, we do see her take control in every situation and then she never gets victimized whatsoever. I mean, yes, he violates her thoughts by going inside of her brain. But I mean, if you have that done throughout like the whole the whole series by different, you know, Jedi against each other. It's like, no, she's not a victim. She's a strong, a strong, and a strong female character doesn't necessarily have to be desexualized. And I feel like a lot of nowadays, it's almost like a backlash to the fact that, you know, all the Disney movies were about romance, right? So now mm-hmm. mm. can't have romance because what would that, what message does that send little girls? Well, I would say that it would be a worse message to send to little girls that, they can't be powerful and heroic and have love at the same time. Mm. That's, to that's play a... devil's advocate, I think that a lot of that resistance to Ray having any kind of romance is because people obviously look at the example of Luke, because Ray's considered the new Luke in this new series of films, and Luke did not end up with a love interest by. Yeah, but he kissed his sister. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a valid criticism to make, but it might be being misguided and uh, somehow put to- towards this story as if it exists in isolation. But there is this emphasis in the hero's journey of this larger threat that the hero has to overcome. And along the way, he might get the girl, but she's not the main motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in it, often a lot of heroine journeys, and if we're looking at Ray's journey in that context as a potential love interest or whatever as the animus and antagonist. Um, some people are wary of Ray and Kylo's dynamic becoming the focus um, mm. and somehow that being a bad thing. But again, it all depends on the execution. And as Shai pointed out earlier, we're seeing a lot of the tropes already being subverted in The Force Awakens. So it doesn't yeah. mean you know the end goal of the story. It's just this is what's here and the kind of tropes that the writers are playing with. Um, right. Okay. So to move on, we're going to go on to the interrogation scene, mm-hmm. um, which I think, to be fair, we've already touched upon quite a lot of it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like Shy was saying, that's pretty much like the access point, like for the, this whole freaking ship. <laughs> um, so you can use um, the abduction to talk about basically any facet of Rain Kylo's relationship. Um, but yeah. So what? do we make of the interrogation scene specifically like how does it fit into the context of the force awakens like what are the more general thoughts about like what that means and what those implications are uh nat do you want to go first <laughs> since i talked way too much the first time that's okay uh i i um i i think one of the things uh, about the scene is that it's kind of just a weird scene in star wars right we have such a yeah. very you have such a tightly edited movie that's very action oriented, and then you have this uh, literally a scene where they're just staring at each other, not saying any dialogue, and you know, you know, straining against each other mentally. So I think it that kind of like jarred people a little bit and made people maybe feel a little uncomfortable. But um, I, I mean, I don't. I think I appreciate it because the subtleties of the scene are just you could watch that over and over again and still find something new from it. I think we all were like waiting with bated breath for it to come out on YouTube <laughs> after the <laughs> movie came out. Cause we're like, what did we just watch? <laughs> you know? Um, but I think, I think a lot of it too is because people kind of maybe are uncomfortable by the idea of Ray being restrained, you know? And like, they kind of 
think that she's powerless in the situation. So it kind of gives them this idea that Kylo is, you know, dominant or, or like, you know, taking advantage of her in some way. Uh, in reality, they start out the scene with him kneeling on the ground, watching her sleep. And there's this sort of like kind of interesting symbolism where you have him kneeling before her and the light is shining down on her. And it's almost like he's paying, he's like worshiping or paying deference to her. It's very strange. And then of course he says, you know, you're my guest and I don't want to lie to you. <laughs> he says in the novelization. He's uh, God. It's the novelization. It's just so yeah. bizarre. Um, yeah. He removes maybe... her restraints in the novelization. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's, and he touches her anew. Like, he's, he's oh, a yeah. big fan of touching her face in the novel. Like, it's... I, <laughs> to be... Uh, <laughs> to be harder than anybody else. Okay, yeah, to be fair, I think this is the author um, more than anything else. Like, the, I don't know if you've read Alan Dean Foster's novelization yet of The Force Awakens, uh, but the way that he writes Ray and Kylo Ren um, is very different from the way, like, it's essentially the same scenes, but the way that he words those scenes compared to the movie itself is, you can tell, like, I don't want to call him a shipper, but I'm going to call him a shipper. Because um, he puts so much attention to detail into how he touches her face and just, you know this, this this little snip of a girl right you know oh this you know but she's interesting you know Hux is not but she is right and he goes on and on and on about this for like 18 chapters and he won't describe <laughs> battle scenes but good god he will devote an entire paragraph to like Kylo's hairstyle and how he's tortured of Maine and like you know this 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 feisty little girl who's he's going to be like you know who is who oh god I I don't even know where to begin I I, I, I don't know what um Alan Dean Foster had for reference to be honest yeah, genuinely yeah. is a genuine question because obviously he was writing this well before there was like a final cut of the film and generally in my experience novelizations they're written based on the script yeah. and just photos and like other reference documents like maybe storyboards and stuff um. So yeah, like he comes up with the most peculiar things. <laughs> like the, the, there's like a moment, uh, like sorry to backtrack slightly, but when yeah, like, like he's abducting Ray, like she, she like he like lets her collapse to the ground, and mm-hmm. then see like there's just like this bizarre interlude where he crosses to the stormtrooper, who's like watching this, and like <laughs> stormtroopers thinking. Gosh, this is very weird, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think Kylo Ren normally does this. This is but very I won't odd. Say <laughs> no, it was just the his. I, I think he was it, it, to answer your your question, like the genuine question about like you know what what was he working from, right? Like maybe in an earlier version that they there was some touching going on, but to be honest with you, I think they took it out, and for good reason. I'm glad they took it out because like if they had had if she had been restrained. And he had been touching her, like physically touching her. That would have read really, really different. Um, mm-hmm. And it would. And I think it, even if he was like, even in, in like the forest when he he freezes over the forest before they get the bridal carry, right? Just to backtrack a bit too, right? Like he's just um, he he hovers over her, but it doesn't really. You can maybe guess as to whether or not he actually touches her before the bridal carry. Um, and it's just so. I think if Kylo was touching her as much as, as Kylo touches her in the novelization, I think everyone would be saying, oh my God, there's something sexual going on here. And it would be combined with this idea that Rey is Luke's daughter. Um, so it's like, <laughs> oh my God, the amount of incest in this story. So I, I feel, <laughs> so it's just like, I, I don't know, man, I pick it up. So it, so I, I feel that it was that, that, 
that 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 stuff was taken out for a good reason mm. um and i'm, I'm kind of glad that they did yeah. uh, that, that said there is some very weird stuff going on in the interrogation scene still yeah, I think that um, JJ, I think he said that they recorded like particular scenes over and over again, like in all kinds of different ways mm-hmm. to like give it a different tone and different flavor. And I'm pretty sure he said that they did that of the interrogation scene specifically. I think Daisy might have even said it. Um, like, so I reckon that the reason why it plays out so differently in the novelization is quite possibly there is a version out there that was filmed like that but then they looked at it and like you say they realized that there's all these deeply uncomfortable associations he is directly touching her and making that physical contact and so they decided they didn't want to go that far with it because that just unlocks a whole can of worms well there's already lots of worms so yeah it breaks this it breaks the subversion of the trope right like the fact like the 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 whole the the, the big the big draw behind Raylo and why it's so interesting in terms of the um in terms of of why the trope is subverted so well is because ray gets out of it basically essentially unscathed like as i mentioned before right like he doesn't actually touch touch her in terms of like what we see in the novels compared to the novels right um like he just hovers and there's this really there's, there is connotations with him touching her in her strained position that would that would actually have subtext behind it that would be very very um uh, uncomfortable to say the least right um and it breaks that subversion this idea that ray can you know turn this trope on its head and get out on skates like it takes away that female power version mm-hmm. or that female power fantasy and turns it into something else right it turns it into something much more traditional yeah um, so that's why i'm i'm, I'm glad it's gone <laughs> yeah. right because it's, it's it, I, I like this i like tropes but I, I in particular like the subversion of tropes you know yeah well, that's the thing that I like the most about Raylo. I wouldn't be interested if it were, like you say, just about this dominant man, like terrorizing this poor woman. Yeah. Like it's all about like redressing that balance and putting them on an equal footing by the final act of the film. That's why the fight in the forest at the end is my f- favorite scene in the whole film, because that's like Ray's retribution. <laughs> almost. <laughs> it, is, it is. It totally is. Like yeah. she, like the, I can't get over the fact of how just how phallic the the, the lightsabers are in, in the Force Awakens. Like even Kylo's lightsaber, like you know, with it's like a little cross guard at the bottom there, and how he ignites it right next to her mouth. Like I just, I, I have a tag on my blog that is literally Kylo Ren, Kylo Ren, and the ongoing adventures of awkward boners. So, oh. so it's it's a thing with him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, she's been pretty repressed. I mean, <laughs> uh, sorry. Where where were we um, with the interrogation scene? I um, facilitated derailment there. <laughs> Nat, I think you were talking about the weirdness or about how he's down on the ground with her, or like his. Oh the... yeah, just he, he kneeling and then uh, you know, there's I don't know if anybody notices. There's like a clunk that wakes her up. Like, how long is he sitting there, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um. Yeah, there's the the blocking in the scene is is very interesting because it kind of it it looks very similar to what you see in the in in the forest where he's kind of they have it sort of sort of tilted so she's kind of like below right and kind of like un like he is taller and bigger and scarier and she's like kind of 
you know, pushed back. But then and they flip it on its head in the interrogation scene where he's basically pretty much spends most of the scene kind of crouched, right? And she's above him. Mm. And so she's in the position of power and she's he's paying her deference in a way. Um, but not just that, like um there is again, it's it it's a, it's a it's a weird thing. Just you, you would never you've never seen this in a Star Wars movie where people just literally have a a minute of just staring at each other in pure silence and just you know, connecting through the force, which I think a lot of us came away with that. Like she goes into his head just as he goes into hers and she obviously gets information from that. And I think, you know, we can go into a for- the force bond theories a little bit later. Um, but I feel like it's very, very obvious for the audience that they make a connection. And, you know, there is a kind of su- a sexual subtext in that because there is that kind of, I mean, you know, obviously nothing physical, it's just subtext, but they're meeting and seeing the most intimate parts of each of each other's minds and memories. And that's for for a stranger, <laughs> you know, that's a it's a very deep and intimate thing, right? So yeah. And I um if you I don't know if it, listeners are familiar with the Time magazine review where they liter where the author literally said the sexual energy between them is strange and unsettling, like a theremin sonata only they can do. <laughs> So oh, what, yeah. is, what is what did the redditors call the author again? What was it? Oh, a dominant a dominatrix fetishist and a pervert. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that was the response on Reddit. At celebration, go. I dare you to wear a t-shirt that has that quote emblazoned on it. <laughs> <laughs> it pretty much sums it up, right? Like there there is this thing going on that the audience feels like you're almost encroaching on this private moment, but you also it's not very accessible because there's no dialogue in that moment. It, even through the whole scene, the dialogue's pretty sparse. But once they start battling that out, there's nothing. You're just looking at their expressions and obviously very focused in on those tight shots of their faces. And Ray's panting, but they've <laughs> artificially swiped Kylo's noise out of it. Mm-hmm. If, if they'd left in his sound, there would be no ambiguity of what was, <laughs> you know? Oh, but because there's just hers, yeah. it's like... I don't mm-hmm. know. The, that scene has been edited to death. Like you can tell, it's spliced in from all yeah. these different takes, for better or worse. But they obviously wanted to get it right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's like, but it's also like, what's your definition of right? Because depending on who you talk to, the scene either went too far or it didn't go far enough, right? Like, right. Yeah, it's... I can just imagine JJ obsessing over it. You know, like that being yeah. one of the scenes where he really wanted to say what he wanted to say but then they also had to hold things back because of the mystery box and to keep mm. people speculating so it's, it's a box entirely covered in tinfoil inside <laughs> multiple layers i think even making star wars said that um that scene was going to have very important ramifications going forward oh yeah um so yeah we we know that it was absolutely a scene that they put a great deal of like force and care into one of my favorite things in the behind the scenes footage is they show behind the scenes from the interrogation and it's Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley. And then there's like about 30 dudes <laughs> like just <laughs> behind them, yes. like all looking on. And it's so funny because that, that's the magic of movies. You know, you never for a moment dream that there's all these like people in their like Star Trek t-shirts behind them holding boom mics. <laughs> um, but like, I think just the sheer fact that they had so many people present in this tiny space for this apparently simple looking scene. Like that says a lot. It says, no, we need to get this right. Get your asses in here. Be in the room. <laughs> it's really funny. Like it's one of my favorite pictures. I'll have to find a screen cap. Yeah. Oh, it's just 
see the whole I don't know I just I think the funniest thing for me about that whole scene is like it's definitely important I mean I, I like the obviously I mentioned I like the brother caring more but the, the interrogation is definitely important but for me the funniest thing about that scene or what really sealed it as as Kylo being a romantic interest is the amount of hairspray he's wearing <laughs> you know like that's when you take off your helmet like he takes off his helmet and this is a close fitting helmet your hair should not look like that like I know he's got hand solo jeans there you know like so he's 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 got a leg up on on the rest of us up plebs but the uh you know, like there's gotta be at least two cans of hairspray in his hair. Um, so, so he, and it's just perfectly coiffed, you know, and he looks, if you see Adam Driver in real life and Adam Driver uh, or Kylo Ren in the scene, right? You know, like um, in the movie as Kylo Ren, he looks like 10 years younger. Like they've styled mm-hmm. him to be, to look younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, if you look at the other, dark side users right like if you look at the other sith or sith in training or anyone who is fiddled with the force for a while you know um they thought fiddled with the force yes sorry uh, you can make <laughs> very childish you can make all sorts of connotations of that um it's just that you're, you're you end up looking kind of kind of fucked right <laughs> like, it's just yeah. like you you it really does a number on your system uh, um and he's so the idea that they're showing him in this, the way that, like the, you know, a, a, essentially as a Disney prince, right, um, is, is very, very, I think it's a very conscious decision, right, right. Uh, to, to style him that way, uh, both from like, you know, the archetypal and Jungian sort of um, subtext and also from like Star Wars, literal Star Wars canon subtext, like yeah. Sith or people that are supposed to be Sith do not normally look like that. Like if you saw Anakin, he got like he got fucked up pretty bad, really like right away, right? Like his eyes went went bad pretty fast. Um, so it's just it's interesting for me, right? And for me, that like kind of solidified the idea, like okay, yeah, he's. I'm pretty sure they're not siblings, and I, I'm pretty sure they're not cousins either. Mm. Um, but yeah, that yeah. kind of thing is why I love the commentary so much. So I think a literal <laughs> quote from JJ's mouth is someone along the lines of, "And here's Kylo Ren looking like some sort of prince." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah, that comes back to the intentionality of what they're doing with the story yeah. and mm-hmm. the archetypes, like looking at them honestly and not just saying, "Well, that's just like shipping Luke and Vader." <laughs> because it's not at all like if you look honestly at the archetypes that they're employing with Kylo Ren, we've seen them in other stories. Like you don't just have to look at Star Wars canon, but he's very clearly in that role of like the gothic anti-villain, the tortured, brooding, you know, the monster with a tragic past. Like Rebel. they're laying it on pretty thick. It's not subtle. Yeah, Star Wars has never been subtle with their with their subtext. Like they sometimes they'll they occasionally do that thing where it's like, you know, your father was killed by Darth Vader. Like that sort of, that sort of spiel where it's like, they say something while meaning something else. But in terms of actual subtext, it's just, it's very straightforward. Um, It's, and it's very, 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 very classical archetypes. Right. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact of what George Lucas was inspired by originally. Right. And there's, there's really nothing wrong with the, with the, with the archetypes and, and the subtext being so blatant or being classical archetypes. Like I, there, there really isn't. And I, I think it's actually very interesting that with the leading up to the force awakens and actually after the force awakens, when there was criticism on, you know, death star 3.0, um, 
there was this idea that, you know, like the Star Wars had to evolve a bit in order to remain relevant, like it couldn't remain stagnant. Um, and I think we see that in the subversion of the tropes, especially with Ray. So I find it very interesting that they're still combining very, very blatant subtext and very, very classical archetypes, but they are subverting those classical archetypes while still remaining true to canon. Like it's this juggling act and it's very difficult. Um, and I'm just glad to see that they're at least attempting it. You know, like sometimes people don't. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, is that everything we want to say about the interrogation scene, guys? Um, I did have some notes on canonical precedents, but it's not really tied to the interrogation scene. It's more tied to like a big criticism of of people saying a big criticism against people who believe that Raylo is happening, whatever it is. Is you're basing it all on archetypes that have nothing to do with Star Wars. Wow. Uh, but I did have the part that I wanted to talk about in terms of actual canonical in Star Wars precedents for the kind of dynamic that we see between Kylo, Ren, and Rey. Okay. Um, so, but that's not really tied to the interrogation scene in general. So I think that interrogation scene itself, I'm good for. Okay, cool. Um, like, did we want to talk about how it compares to the whole thing with Poe at all? Oh, the thing with Poe is really interesting, actually. Because mm. it's yeah. like the... Like they they essentially receive they essentially repeated the exact same scene in the movie. Yeah. Um, and when you repeat a scene in a piece of media, whether it's a movie or it's a TV or it's a, or it's a book, it's because you want to draw attention to the repetition of that scene and the differences between the two scenes. Um, usually to have some sort of juxtaposition, right? Like you're trying to drive home a point uh, that there's a difference there. Um, and I think that's why they did the post. Like the the setup for both scenes is is the same and not at the same time, right? And it's really interesting to see how Kylo treats Poe versus how he treats Rey. And, I mean, I talked about it over an hour ago now, but, like, the... Uh, <laughs> I have too much ranting. Um, but, like, it's essentially, like, so Ka- Kylo, until Rey comes along, he's got this sort of casual sort of brutality to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does... He, he's, he's violent, but it's a very sort of cold sort of violence. Um, and in the book, it comes across very much as cockiness, right? Like, he knows he's the um, the grandson of Vader, and there's really no one else that can challenge him. Um, and he's... So he's equal parts this, this low-simmering rage and this, this idea of privilege right um and uh but he inflicts violence on upon other people and you really see him going at it with with uh with poe but not really caring that he's hurting poe like he's not upset over it and it's not until the the interrogation scene with ray that things change and that starts to break down and then we see it break down in a really major way when he kills his father you know, like mm-hmm. that's, it's a, it's a step-by-step process. And then by the end of the film, we see it truly break down um, with the actual fight in the stone. Yeah. yeah. Um, that seems like a very good point to move on to said fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So go run wild, guys. What are your thoughts on the fight in the forest? Oh, it's, it's another, I think it's another juxtaposition. Um, mm-hmm. Another because there because again you have him fighting against uh, Finn, um, and you have him fighting against Ray soon afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting to see how he how he treats Finn versus how he treats Ray. Yeah, uh, and I I think it really points to he's also obsessed with traitors, um, and this doesn't really have so much to do with with Raylo so much as I'm curious as to what is this obsession with traitors, um, or because there's a quote actually. 
in the interrogation scene itself where he's like, you know, uh, where he's talking or Ray asks what happened to her friends. And he said, uh, uh, basically says murderers and thieves you call friends. Exactly. That one. Right. So he's, he's obsessed with traitors and he seems to take it out on Finn. Um, so I'm, it's, a, so the juxtaposition is really interesting, um, to see the, to see between the two of them. It's also interesting to see how the force back was, uh, mirrored in the scene as well. Um, with how they tied it, how they tied it in, um, the, the choreography was really, really interesting. Um, and just the way that Kylo is set up archetypically in an archetypal way as, as the monster or as the dragon here, you know, like there's very much, there's, there's once again, there's that death motif or there's like, you know, the, uh, and it's, and it's like, there's, um, there's this motif in, in, in classical archetype, um, classical archetypes where, uh, there's, you know, there's the maiden, which is played by Ray as an archetype in this, in, in the force awakens. Um, and she's, you know, rescued by um, the knight in shining armor from the dragon. And the, this, this whole setup between, um, uh, and the dragon is usually slayed at the end. Right. So there's, so there's this whole setup between the three characters here, between Kylo, between Finn and, and Ray um, with that archetype that's going on here. And then it's subverted. You know, um, so it's it, it's the, the the dragon is almost humanized and and, uh, and diminished at the end, but not killed. And the maiden saves herself, uh, which is which is fantastic, uh, which is basically the whole reason why I personally am interested in, in Raylo, because this, of this this culmination of the subversion of the trope um, and the. I do think it's a little bit extra though, like the way that the earth splits right between them, uh, <laughs> right before she gets onto the ship. Um, uh, it's like very, very blatant symbolism and, um, and a little bit heavy handed for my tastes, but it's star Wars too. Right. Like I'm not, mm. going, I'm it's, it, it is what it is. And, and you know, there's, there's multiple audiences to cater to, you know, yeah. in terms of actual subtext and stuff. Yeah. No, I really like that. Like it, I think it's um like really, like it is a bit heavy-handed, like the symbolism and stuff. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing subtle about Kylo, like on his back lying bleeding in the snow. <laughs> it's a pretty definitive um, closing point for that character in that film. Um, but I think I like it. I like it when things like that are writ large because I guess like a part of me just loves the melodrama <laughs> of it, and I like that after all this like subtlety and ambiguity like this is just totally in your face like ray is the dominant one ray is the predator ray mm-hmm. is the one like looking down at him like even like see it's like um natasha said even in the interrogation scene ray is the one looking down at kylo even then mm-hmm. and obviously while she might from a technical point of view be restrained and not be able to free herself like until she's learned the mind power to do so like she really does have the upper hand like pretty much always over kylo and like this scene in the forest is just about beating that beating you over the head of that and beating kylo over the head of it in particular because he (laughs) didn't want to accept that ray had so much power and in particular power over him personally so i really think that in that physical domination it's also like a mirror of how she's completely consumed all his actions and all his motivations. So yeah, it's just like drawing a line under it. Yeah. It's also <laughs> very, in, 
Yes. It's very important that we see Ray reject the monster multiple times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. that's part of the heroine's journey that she doesn't want to accept and acknowledge the other who is perceived as her polar opposite, but actually there's something more ambiguous going on between them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've seen kind of part of the discourse, like this idea that, oh, Raylo shippers wish that she'd just accepted what he was giving out, you know, that no, she should have, she should have uh, accepted him as a teacher, but that's not at all that the whole point is that she's rejecting him right now because this is the first act. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, that's going to be her journey to come to understand who he is and why they might not be so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. In a nutshell, there's this criticism of the of the examination of the dynamic between Ray and Keller, right? In that the people that are examining it are always drawing from outside context, you know, like the outside mm-hmm. archetypes, and you know, they're not they're not paying true attention to the Star Wars canon, you know. And yeah. as we all know, canon is king, and don't you dare mess with it, right? <laughs> um, but that was a big thing that got that Rogue One had to deal with. Um, but the, the the fact of the matter is, like, so for me, as I mentioned at the very very beginning. Like canon is my my thing, right? Like the the whole reason why I got interested in Raylo beyond the obvious, you know, visual clues that we see in the in the film is that it, there is there is actual dynamic and there's precedence for this before within the Star Wars canon, um, and the the most notable one uh, is actually between Bastila, Sean, and Revan from the Old Republic era. Um, and, and just to give the, uh, the idea of, of who these two characters were, uh, Revan was, um, essentially the Sith Antichrist. <laughs> like there, there's, 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 he was, he was the penultimate, penultimate Sith, right? Like he was, he was, um, he was around for quite a long period of time. He was responsible for a whole lot more than Kylo. It makes Kylo look like chump change. Um, and, uh, Bastila, was Bastila Shan was it was a Jedi prodigy, right? Like top I mean, cream of the crop, right? Um, and the, the the story between the two of them is Reben was off uh, waging war, um, and Jedi, uh, Bastila uh, boarded his ship with the Strike Force, uh, knocked him out. Um, he almost died, uh, but they still wanted basically information from him. Uh, so she created a force bond with him to keep him alive. And over the course of manipulating Revan into giving up this information, uh, the two of them fall in love and then are saved by the power of love. Like they even have a kid together at the end. It's very, very, it's the most romantic wishy-washy shit you can ever come across, really. Uh, and it's canon. Uh, so it, it's, so it's, so there's, there's a precedent for this idea of a Jedi uh, stand-in and a Sith stand-in um in in Star Wars canon to get together right like to actually for there to actually be a romantic uh dynamic between the two of them for them to come to get past this idea of them being combatants and and working on to something new right mm-hmm. yeah um and the there's always there's originally I had thought that um Kylo Ren and and Rey were were modeled off of uh, Bastila and, and Revan, um, but I wasn't the first one to think this either. You know that this there was speculation about this long before the, the movie actually dropped, um, and I do believe it was mostly debunked. Um, but it, I think that speaks more to the fact that this is a common archetype rather than Revan and Bastila themselves. Um, and, and there's this whole idea, and we saw it in the Star Wars data bank, where they basically talk about this strange force connection between Kylo Ren and Rey. 
Yeah. You know, um, and I suspect it's, it might be a force bond. Um, and uh, in a nutshell, uh, a force bond was a link through which a pair of force sensitive individuals could influence each other. Um, and through this bond, they could communicate feelings, thoughts and images um, across really large distances. Um, and they could also relay instructions to each other, uh, go through each other's men- uh, memories and draw on each other's strengths and powers um, and to better syn- synchronize themselves in battle. Um, and sometimes these force bonds were also called force chains, especially when they were forced upon the other person. Um, and you see this with Darth Treya, who was also from the Old Republic era. Um, and during the new Jedi Order, a technique called force meld also arose, which was based off this concept. Um, and there's there's several different versions. Like uh, there's the familial force bond version, which I talked about in the very very beginning between which could exist between, um, you know, father and child in the case of like Luke and Ray, if they were related. Um, they were also really common between Jedi masters and apprentices. Um, and in the case of, of, of uh, Kylo Ren and Ray or Bastila and, and Revan, it could also be a, of a romantic or a sexual type, right? So there's actual canonical, um, evidence for this sort of dynamic existing before even if you strip away all like the Jungian archetypes and you strip away the classical mythology you know the death motifs the Hades and Persephone this artifact of Star Wars still exists and it's still possible within canon without destroying your canon so I don't I feel that the backlash towards towards Raylo or towards the idea that they're there's a mysterious connection between the two of them is not so much that there's a mysterious connection between the two of them because we've seen it before and Revan is an incredibly popular character it's that because it's the heroine's journey and it's told from Ray's perspective rather than the man's perspective like I feel like that is um, really affecting people's perception of it yeah right because the enemies to lovers trope is a thing in Star Wars canon like even beyond Bastler and Revan you have mm-hmm. the new canon book Dark Disciple but obviously that's from Voss's perspective so again that's like the emphasis is more on the hero as opposed to the anti-villain Ventress um, mm-hmm. and you have Mara Jade and Luke which is probably an even more well-known example yeah. but yeah. Um, again as you say it's that gender reversal that makes it more controversial to some fans mm-hmm. yeah totally on that epic, epic conversation, mm-hmm. we are going to draw things to a close here. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to explain to people, you will be listening to this without having heard the second part of the big Raylo discussion. So the part about fandom and the part about our expectations of Raylo going forward. And that's because we've now been podcasting for almost five hours. And I presumed, maybe wrongly, that most people will not listen to a five-hour-long podcast. So this will be divided. Um, and, yeah, you will find the second half used as the spotlight section in another podcast. So you have that to look forward to. And I promise it's great. When you hear what we think will happen and what we want to happen, which is probably more entertaining, <laughs> you'll be amazed. Um, yeah, so I've really, really enjoyed this discussion. Like. <laughs> epic and i am incredibly hungry but it's been 100 <laughs> worth it and i've enjoyed it so much so thank you to all of you for giving many hours to this <laughs> and, and thank you for inviting us uh, i really appreciated it yeah yeah no- thank you so much for coming on we've really enjoyed having you and talking all things relo <laughs> <laughs> it's really great um like i know that um uh you guys um natasha and shy you had some kind of 
like mystery project that well, it's, wanted it's, to allude to. Oh, it's still a mystery. It's still a mystery project. Uh, basically, uh, Natasha. So Ashes for Foxes. Uh, me, well, aka Otzi, and uh, Holocroning, who was formerly known as uh, Star Wars Hell, um, are teaming up for a big project, uh, which should be dropping either in uh, uh, late spring or early summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Or for more. Information on that, and that's all I'm going to say about it at the moment. (laughs) Very exciting. Right. Okay. So then we're going to run through everyone to find out where they can be found apart from this, and then we will close. So, Shy, where can people find you in their normal day-to-day interneting? Uh, The normal interneting um, at otzi.com. So o h t z e dot com, and that will take you straight to my blog Um, on Twitter. I am um, at Otzi underscore O, um, and I'm I'm on a lot of things actually. <laughs> um, basically, if you go to my if you go to my website um, and you go to the about link list page, there's a whole list of where I where I'm you know usually situated on. I'm on Ao3, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Reddit and, and Twitter, um, and, and the whole list is is all there. Uh, mm. But yeah, come and check it out. I um, prolific poster who has far too much to say (laughs) okay and natasha where can people find you uh you can find me on tumblr i'm ashes for foxes uh my contact page has everything on there but um you'll find me on twitter and reddit as a cross the gray and that's gray with the e um so yeah and that across the gray at gmail.com if you want to eschew all those social media account sites and just email me directly (laughs) Um, and Kirsty, where can people find you? I'm Bastila Bay on Tumblr and Scavengers Horde on Twitter. And you can find me at Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr um, and at Journal of the Star Wars on WordPress. Right, thank you so much, everyone who's made it their way <laughs> through it with us. Um, we really hope you've enjoyed it. Um, like I've definitely really enjoyed it and found it very enlightening to put it mildly it's an absolutely (laughs) fascinating discussion um so yeah bye everyone bye bye